This episode is sponsored by the Real Estate Foundation of BC. REFBC is a philanthropic organization that supports sustainable, equitable, and socially just relationships with land and water. Learn more about the foundation's grants and initiatives at refbc.com. My name is Shayla Rain. I am 23 years old. I'm from Muscogee, Alberta, on Plains Cree. I'm currently studying and residing and working on the unceded silk territory out here. I am a third year human kinetics student at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan, um, an independent author. And yeah, I wear many hats. I, I'm, I dabble into art a little bit. So yeah, and I'm a mother too. That's yeah, incredible. Mother. Can we start because I think it's so valuable for people to be able to hear about what it means to be from your community. Because I think the problem we're facing right now is we treat all Indigenous communities like they're the same. Like most people are now understanding there's Indigenous people, but there's, we're still in such the early phases. Can you tell us about your community um, and what your experience was there? Yeah, so um, I grew up on, I'm an enrolled member, and I grew up on the Kispatnak tribe in Louis Bull, which is one of the four reserves in Muscogee, Alberta, on Treaty 6 territory, central Alberta. So um, my experience growing up out there, um, I was raised like about 60-40 with my uh, grandparents and my mom. So I would live with my mom for a little bit, then I would go and I would live with my uh, my Gukum and Musum, my grandma and grandpa. Um, for me, when I think about my childhood, I always, I always felt like there was like this glass bubble, you know, over my Gukum and Muslim's house because I always felt so safe and protected there. Um, the, we lived on like an acreage out in like the, like the countryside of the reserve, and you know, we had we had a long driveway, we had like a quiet area and everything. So that's why, and it was also a sober household too, my Gukum and Muslim. That's why I loved being there so much. Um, and living with my mother too, um, she lived in like the town site area of Kisputnak and um, just some of my experiences growing up on both sides is um, we didn't, we never had clean drinking water and there still isn't clean drinking water in Kisputnak. And it was just one of those things that was just normal to me growing up. Like I never really like, I never really thought too far into it. Um, we did have, there is um, some gang violence up on the town site area where my mom lived partying, gang violence, um, there, I do, there is, like, one experience where someone was broke into our house and, like, uh, stole some things when we weren't there, and then another experience when I was pregnant with my daughter, and someone did break into our house, but, like, not, they didn't get too far because, like, we pushed the door and everything, and when I was pregnant with my daughter, that's when I realized that it's probably not an ideal environment to be raising my daughter in, I don't want to be living in fear like that anymore, so I moved in with my Gukume Muslim when I was 14. And I wrote out the rest of my pregnancy there, and then I started raising my daughter there. So I would say that, like, my grandparents, they played a huge role in um, raising me and giving me good values and just making me feel really protected, you know. They had that, they had that safe and sober environment where I was able to grow and my daughter was able to grow. So That's, that's so what. beautiful. It sort of reminds me, my mother was a part of the 60s scoop. Mm -hmm. So she was actually raised in a Caucasian household yeah. uh, by a registered nurse who saw the care she was going to need. And I just remember seeing her life circumstance mm -hmm. and she had like what is net, what we sold ended up being like a million dollar home yeah. she always had cookies and milk and like anything you could kind of want as a kid but then being at home money was always a concern there were other people in our building that were committing crimes and struggling with drug use and so going to her place like yours it felt like an escape and it felt like 
I want to live this life. This is where I'd like to go. And if I can work towards being in that circumstance over continuing in this circumstance, how did that shape you knowing that there was one circumstance, crime, and another circumstance, sort of peace, safety, warmth, love? What was that sort of like? Did that develop you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yes, it did. It really, I'm, I'm really grateful that my grandparents uh, were sober and everything to give me that like environment where I could like, you know, sleep in peace and not worry about like not worry about like the crime happening around and everything um so sorry (laughs) what was the question again i'm just curious as to how that shaped you like did that like motivate because to me i i'm very motivated now like i i enjoy doing 12 hour days trying to make an impact on other Mm -hmm. people trying to do good because i see that that can pay life dividends that you can feel warm and and loved and valued if you work towards that rather than the life of crime and and living that life so i see like that motivates me and seeing what i'd like to work towards motivates me and it seems like that motivated you as well to go get an education try and provide for your family and make sure they feel safe and loved i'm just in it really, know. you know, being growing up with my um, my Gokum and my Muslim, it really did motivate me to work hard and make sure that I can provide that for my daughter and also my grandchildren too. I always wanted, because they were my safe space growing up, I wanted to, it did shape me into trying to become my daughter's safe space and my future grandchildren's, my future Chapans, great-grandchildren's be their safe space and provide that home. And, you know, my Muslim is a really hard worker. He's a businessman and he, had, he was running his own busing company for, and he just retired last year so so that was like and he started that when my mom was a baby so he was always a really hard worker and my Gukum worked at his busing company until she was like in her 60s so they were really really hard workers and they they would always wake up first thing in the morning they always taught me like you know don't sleep in until noon you know you know like always keep busy always do something don't ever do nothing you know even if you're like lost in life and you don't know what to do have something that you're doing don't stay idle and everything and um so my muslim and my gukum they did really inspire me to work hard because that they showed me that hard work gets you those spaces and so that's beautiful can you tell us where that came from for them do you do you know what made them because having a clean household um, where there's not alcohol there's not parties taking place that can be challenging when the community around you has such a strong culture do you know where that came from for them yeah well um i don't really i i wouldn't really know um i feel like i would actually have to like sit down and ask them about them ask them about that but from my own experience and like just the conversations that i had around it um they weren't always sober they were they both went to ermanskin residential school and they both like they both have been through some things that they don't really talk about and I I know that they've been through some things is because like they never told me about residential school until I was like in my late teens I had to ask about it that's when I learned about it so it was never a conversation in our house we never really talked about that stuff Um, but I did I did know that like my um that my Muslim did struggle with alcoholism for many many years decades Um, so I know it wasn't easy for him to like stay sober and everything there's been times where he's fallen off the wagon um my gukum too i know that she has like the most outstanding patients because um she's never had she's never had drugs or alcohol in her system she's always been sober so she had to like she had a lot of patience a lot of love and a lot of faith that like being there for him 
for my Muslim and for her family, it had um, a brighter picture at the end, you know, because now now they have they've had a clean household for as long as I've been alive. So 23 years and everything. And now it's just like all I've known was peace. So, yeah. You also talked about how you were sort of bullied or called names. Can you tell us about how that sort of shaped you? Yeah, so um, Musquachese is surrounded by two small towns in central Alberta. So there's Wetaskiwin and Pinoka. And I went to school in Pinoka. And Pinoka is known for, um, honestly, I think it was one of like the biggest like stampedes in Canada. I don't know if it's the big, no, Calgary has to be bigger than that. But I think it's like the second biggest. And Pinoka, they they really thrive on that. And it's really... Um, right-wing and um, farmers and like really predominantly white um, town. So I went to a Catholic school there and that's where I did face some racism. Um, I was always like one of the only uh, Native students in the class. And I remember from like a very young age, like younger than my daughter and like around kindergarten time, that's when I started to really realize that I was different from a lot of my peers. And it was, I like kind of stood out a little bit. And so that was like my experience. And then like growing up as soon as we like got a little bit older, like around grade six. And that's when you really start to see um, students like their um, other like peers around you, how they're being raised, like what information their parents are feeding them. And um, I remember that day so um so vividly it was like during recess and there is a there was a kid in my class and he was known as like the as like the farmer boy and everything. And he was um, I remember he was like taunting me at recess. I don't know why he just chose that day to taunt me. And he was like walking around calling me like a drunk Indian, calling me a dirty Indian and everything. And, you know, when I would walk away from him, he would like still follow me and like just taunt me and stuff like that. And I remember um, feeling, feeling so like for lack of better terms, like feeling ugly in that moment and feeling really like out of place, like I don't belong, like maybe his words are true. And I had another fellow native classmate that was like with me and like really, really hearing that too. And we went into the boot room because recess was done and he was still following me like, oh, like Shayla, like you're, you're a dirty drunk Indian, like Indian, like dirty natives, like they don't deserve anything, saying like little things like that. And the guy I was with, he was getting really, really sick of it. So he pushed him and he pushed him into the trash can. He fell right into the trash can. And then after that, I was like, I saw that and I was like, okay, I'm staying out of this. <laughs> and then um, the, the next period goes over, it's recess again. And we're all sitting there and we're talking to the teachers and he's, you know, crying and everything and saying like, oh, like they pushed me into the trash can. I didn't deserve it. And then we're both saying, you know what? He was saying these racist things to us. We didn't know the word racist or anything at that time, but we were saying like, he called us this, he called us that. He made us feel like this. He was bullying us. He wouldn't leave us alone. And I remember at the very end of that conversation, it was us who had to apologize because we pushed him into the trash can, (laughs) you know? So it was like, so I had to really experience that. How do you say it? Like that that power imbalance and from that moment on that's when I realized that um you know it's not really fair sometimes and like especially in like the town that I grew up and I realized I started to really see that um being indigenous and everything for other people like no matter what you do no matter how good of a person you are like you can't really shape their beliefs it's like it's so instilled in them from their parents and so yeah so that was like one of my very first encounters of um experiencing racism in school and that that's something that has um stuck with me for years and for a while I did feel very um 
how you say like very down about it because I I was thinking at that time I didn't know I wasn't really educated on um, who I was as a native person I wasn't really I didn't know about residential schools I didn't know about the history I wasn't taught it not really at home not really at school and all I knew was I was one of the only brown kids in my class and it made me and that's how I was treated because of it but eventually I came around and I told my Gokum and Muslim I told them everything that this guy said to me and I can't remember the exact words that they told me but I remember from that day forward I had to my Muslim was telling me be proud of who you are as a native person person you know and then telling and and then saying that like um basically this is native land and everything and it was like stolen taken over a little bit of that and um so from that day forward I was like I had his words in the back of my mind and everything and at first I didn't really believe it like to like to say like I'm native and I'm proud of it and everything I didn't really fully believe it but I would have to keep saying that and because it was a matter of survival in those predominantly white right-wing conservative schools right what was the harder challenge being called names or having for lack of a better term the system the teacher the, the person you went to sort of pick the wrong side where they like you have to say you have to apologize even though a you didn't push him in um and b you were the one being bullied like that's that's a deeper portrayal where you look at the system and you go, I'm not going to get like a fair shake in mm-hmm. this conversation. And so which one stuck with you more? Was it the names or was it the, or was it both? It was a little bit of both, but mostly the power imbalance, how you, you go to these teachers, these people in power who are there, suppo- they're supposed to protect you and then they don't. And that's when it made me realize that it's not just my peers and everything. It's people above me. It's my teachers. And then from there, I was actually able to really pick out teachers that would treat me differently and everything like for example a couple of years after that I was at the beginning of grade eight and um, I was living with my mother and um, with with my mother and everything my mother was in a very like um, she, she was in a abusive relationship at the time so there was some domestic violence under my household and me and my older sister were living there and I remember this one this one time um we didn't get a lot of sleep that night and because there, there was some fighting back and forth between my mother and her then ex-boyfriend. And I remember I was just like feeling a little bit low and everything the next day because I didn't get a lot of sleep that night and I wasn't in a great mood. So I remember um, we were in math class and I had my head down and my teacher at the time, he was like, he was teaching a math lesson and I had my head down and he said, um, he was like, Shayla, is there anything going on in your house that I need to know about? Like, perhaps I need to contact social services. And I put my head up and I was like, what? (laughs) Cause I was like tired. I was like, what? And he was like, well, I couldn't help but notice that you and your sister both had your heads down in class today. Is there something going on in the home that you need to tell me about? Because, you know, you're in math class right now and both you and your sister have your head down. And, you know, I would have, I, I feel like if he pulled me aside after class instead of asking me that in front of all of my peers I would have definitely opened up and been like yeah you know what like there is some things going on and I might need like some extensions for my assignments but he he didn't do that he instead he resorted to asking me that in front of all of my peers and I remember I felt like this intense shame you know so I remember you know experiences like that remind me of the very first time where I wasn't protected by my teachers that intention too it doesn't sound like he was asking the question with the intent of 
supporting you or improving the situation. It was more just to shame you. It didn't yeah. seem like he was there to help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was able to see right through that. And I was I from there, I just like I never I never really opened up to him about that stuff at all. Yeah, I really hate that because like I know teachers get into a mindset of like they're there to help. They're there mm -hmm. to lift others up. And that's good. But like they stress so much about the grade or the class. And the thing I constantly critique, particularly with my partner, is she views herself as not a math person based on a grade 10 math class. Mm -hmm. Like this is, your dedication is not to that grade 10 math class. You've got peers, you've got other influences going on in your life, you've got a whole other world going on. Maybe you are experiencing abuses at home and challenges at home. So to think that everybody's their best when they're in grade 10 in a classroom is like, it seems like silliness. Mm -hmm. Yet so many people go, I'm not a math person, I'm not a science person. And it's like, you could be if you were able to like clearly and coherently focus on the topic without pressures and without judgment and without having a grade at the end of the class and saying okay well maybe I just need to improve and like maybe I just need to focus on this that or the other thing but we put time parameters on you need to know this by this date and if you don't then you're behind and then there's such shame in that that you start to try and hide it rather than going wow I should seek out support and help and I think that when people like yourself choose to seek out support and talk to people and say, hey, this is what happened to me, it creates the space for others to say, maybe, I'm, maybe I could be a math person, maybe I am not defined by this person or that person. And I think that that's so important that people hear that, that inspirational message. Where did you go? Because you ended up having a child, I guess, to your own standard, fairly young. What was that? Was that scary at all? Or was that just a, a next step for you? Um, it was definitely scary um, because I was going to the Catholic school at the time when I did get pregnant. So around that time, that's when I like kind of dropped out of that school and I, I went to an outreach, you know, and I was trying to keep everything really on the down low, keep it really secret because I knew that I was very young. Um, but you know how small towns go and everything. I had one best friend and then that best friend told these people and everything. So eventually by the time that I returned to the public school system where we were, in, where I wasn't in the outreach doing modules I was in a classroom setting um, everyone already knew that I was a teen mom so um, it was a little bit scary it really was because it wasn't just um, being like being a young mother and going through the changes of pregnancy so young when I don't even know who I am myself but I was also involved in a very in a relationship that looked a lot like the relationships my mother was in so you know that intergenerational trauma I I wasn't aware of it at the time I really wasn't it was normal for me to be involved with people who didn't treat me good and so it there was that factor um it it had a it did damage like my um my my self-esteem and my motivation to like get things done to, to be in school and everything it really it really took a lot out of me to be um a young teen mom um, involved in an abusive relationship and not having a lot of friends being really isolated from um my friends and my family and everything so there was there was that factor i, I did i was dealing with a lot more my mother would say that i that I have like 10 times more on my plate than other people my age do. And just to like, you know, take it one step at a time and everything. And um, I did have my family there with me, but there was, um, I actually spoke at a conference recently talking a little bit about being a teen mom and everything and uh, really pinpointing that, that breaking point where I didn't want to go down that path anymore of um, really being 
in like the cycle of intergenerational trauma and really wanting to change it from, you know, being more like my grandparents in the future than being than like, um, you know, living in the cycles of trauma. And on that speech, I shared with people that um, one thing that happened to me when I was 16 was I ended up in a women's shelter in Muscochis. And it was it really it was really one of those things where all these things had to happen to me to put me in that spot, because in that spot, that's where I realized, you know, I never want to be here ever again. I don't belong here. I belong, you know, in a safe environment that's predictable. I belong in a loving home and everything. And that's when I realized that I need to start living for my daughter. I need to I need to heal for her. And at the at the time, I didn't really know what healing meant. I really didn't know anything about that, but I took the first step of going to therapy. And through therapy, I was my therapist, my very first one, she gave me a journal and that's where she's like, "Do you write?" And I was like, well, I used to write as a child. I used to make comic books and everything. And she said, well, I really strongly encourage you to start writing in this journal. And then that's when I started realizing how therapeutic writing was for me yeah. and going to therapy, you know, recon reconcealing all of my relationships with my family and um, raising my daughter in that safe and sober household and you know, really, really healing my inner wounds and everything and fostering healthy relationships that got me in like a good, you know, dynamic with my immediate family. And they supported me so much because they knew that my in my heart, my daughter was there and I wanted to do good for her. And with that support, I was able to graduate high school on time. Wow. So... So yeah, it was That's amazing. a lot that happened. A very the very beginning of being a teen mom, it was a really dark place for me. But I had to get to that rock bottom to learn those lessons that mountaintops could never teach me. That's incredible. I think that that's really well put. And that was going to be my next question: is it seems like I've met people in my life who are struggling, but they're not at that point yet where they're ready to let go of the vices, let go of what what ails them. Um, there's people who struggle with drug use and they're like, it's not a problem yet. I've got it managed. And they're, they're justifying it so much to themselves that things are going to be okay. Just another couple of weeks and things will improve. And yet things, you have to hit a point where, do you have any advice for people who might be in that spot, who might be kind of telling everybody, I'm going to figure it out. I'm getting my life together. I'm going to start to take those steps. But in a few weeks, I just want things to calm down. And they're always kind of looking towards the future. What kind of clicked in that moment for you? Or was that, was that something you were struggling with? Um, to be honest, I would say the biggest thing for not just that situation, but for any situation at all, if you're in a slump and you and you feel like you can't get out of it, you don't necessarily have to believe in yourself at first. You just need to take action and you can like, like for me, like I didn't know what healing was. All I did was take action and went to therapy. And through there, I, I started to get, gain momentum and then I started to gain a lot of self-awareness. And then through seeing how, how much I healed, I was able to start really believing in myself. And I can't stress enough how important it is to also have the people close to you believe you and support you too. It's not one of those things where I did completely by myself. I had the love of my mother. I had the love of my grandmother, my sisters, my, my immediate family. I had their support and they believed in me and that was that was a lot that uh, it made quite the difference having that because people believed in me before I believed in myself and my therapist believed in me before I believed in myself so just take action 
And sometimes, you know, take, you have the courage to take that leap, you know, and then through taking action, that's where you really gain the awareness and the confidence to keep going. And that's when you're like, oh, wow, I can do this. And then you start believing in yourself right. down the road. There's this great quote that we accept the love we think we deserve. How did you let go of the negative influence and strive towards better? Was that was part of that motivation? It sounds like was your daughter. And saying, I don't want this for you. And so I need to go break this cycle. It seems like that's something that people need is like, it needs to be bigger than yourself. It needs to be something where it's, if it's just about you, then you can go to the casino all weekend long and blow all your money because there's no consequence. But when there's someone else who's going to be impacted by your decisions, then there's like a, okay, but I have to do it this way. Mm -hmm. How did that kind of play a role for you? So that's one of the gifts, I believe, of being a young mother is that I was still a child myself. So I was able to really see my myself and my daughter. You know, I was only 15, 16, and I was able to really remember like big moments in my childhood, especially being like raised in like a household where there was domestic violence. I remember having to grab my younger siblings and put us in a room and keep them company, you know, just to, you know, block out the noise going on. And I remember um you know having to do things like that and I just remember like just just the feeling you know like of like geez why can't they just get it together you know and feeling you know like I wasn't loved in that moment even though like my mother loved me so much like and like I don't doubt her love but in that moment as a child you feel like there's these different priorities you know and I remember feeling like unseen and like a little bit unloved and feeling like I had too much on my plate having to deal with the domestic violence going on in my home. And I, when I had a child and everything, I was able to like see through Ayla's eyes around when she was six months old. That's around the time when I ended up in a woman's shelter. And I was able to see, you know, I don't want her to like be hiding under tables and everything, trying to block out the noise of fighting and everything. I remember thinking to myself I don't want that to be her that was my childhood but it doesn't have to be her childhood so having that you know really being aware of my daughter and like um how she's being raised her how her experiences are shaping her and everything so I really stress that like I don't I don't want any fights to be happening in front of my daughter because I just know how lonely that is as a child and so that that really did help me that's too. incredible one of the challenges I think people face though is that those people seem to reach out the people who are worst for you or who have maybe not your best intentions in mind they seem to try and scrape their way back into your life in one way or another was that ever a challenge um so what like sorry can you like rephrase that like are sure. you like in regards to like my like my stepfather or no like... uh you're the person you were with at the time who was, oh, yeah. who was not treating you well those people tend oh, to want to yeah. kind of re-enter your life and and they try and get a foothold back in when they start seeing you succeed or when they start seeing your life go a different direction was that ever a challenge um yeah i, I would say it was like a little bit of a, a thing you know and it it, it had to through, he, through going through to therapy and everything, I had to gain a lot of self-control to know that, like, to really pinpoint the manipulation tactics and everything, the cycle, you know, oh, it starts... It's, it starts out with love bombing and everything, but don't fall into it because sooner down the road, they fall back to their old patterns and everything. So it was... Um, after the woman shelter situation and having to really like um, remove myself from there, it was 
a lot, I had to take a lot of self-control to not fall back into what was familiar to me because familiar isn't healthy. I had to, I had to make up a new familiar for me. And like what you said, like we accept the love that we think we deserve. I had to really learn, go inwards and really think about what I deserve. And for me, it was something that wasn't in my vocabulary. It was almost like I was, I didn't really envision a life outside of my trauma that I had to really redefine. What is it to be in a healthy relationship? What is it to have this unwavering love for yourself where when someone tries to step on you, when they try to manipulate you and disrespect you, you have to put your foot down and put up those boundaries. And it was, it, it was hard. It took, it took years for me to really like know what, what my boundaries were and, you know, really, really stand rooted in who I was as a person. And, you know, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's the challenge because we sympathize with the flawed individuals. We can see, like, they didn't have good parents. They didn't have a good upbringing. And so we can empathize to a certain extent with their circumstance. And then we don't want to be another person who throws them to the side. But it's about, first, you kind of have to take care of yourself and your family before you can look outward and say, I can give that hand up. But when you're just kind of climbing out of hell it's tough to give that hand up because you're not out yet it's not like you have that peace and that everything's going to be okay but you said something before and I just want to make sure everything connects you talked about comic books can you tell us about making comic books because Mm -hmm. I think that that will likely lead into the journals and then Mm -hmm. writing and creating books yeah so as a child I was always drawing and always writing um my older cousins they read manga all the time so that's that was one of the first books that I read was manga and I I loved it I just loved like the comic books and like the way they drew their characters I always thought that like anime drawings were so cute and I just loved them so much so I would always like try and copy it and um so uh, starting really young I think grade one starting in grade one I started making my own little comic books and everything and I would even make them go like like read them uh left to right no right to left and everything the way manga books were so I started doing that really young and then when I was in grade two three nope grade three and four that's when um I started showing my teachers and they they would get it laminated and looking back now that was 100% a coping mechanism for me to like kind of escape the reality of what I was living in and really dive into this fantasy world and really you know thinking oh what would my perfect life be and everything and then just like writing it down in the book and then that really that was the start of my writing journey. That seems like it would be so important for people to do in their lives because we start to lose what our potential might look like. And when you're young, people say, like, what do you want to do? And you say doctor, police officer, lawyer, judge, all these great things. But Mm -hmm. then at a certain point, it's like, be realistic. And all the things that you ever wanted to be seem out of reach. And I think that that's so unfortunate because there's lots of doctors who start at 40. There's lots of lawyers who start at 40. There's lots of people who find their passion later in life, but you you get into a rut and you start to think that this is life. And I'm just interested to know how that journaling impacted you because it sounds like things started to calm down and you were able to say, what do I want for my life? And so what was that kind of reestablishing, rekindling that relationship with like your dream life? What what did mm-hmm. that look like for you? So when um, I started journaling and everything in therapy, it was strictly journaling and just like, you know, the thoughts in my head. And sometimes I would get a little bit creative, but I wouldn't really get too far into it because I wasn't really, I didn't really have that, like that passion like I did when I was a child. In that moment, I was just focusing on healing and surviving. And sometimes I would start, um, 
when I was around 18, that's when I started to really get back into poetry and really start like, like researching in my old time, like how do you write poetry and stuff like that. So I remember um, around 18, that's when I started writing poetry, just like things to keep to myself. And I never really wanted to share it with the world. I honestly never thought I would ever share my writing with the world. But um, one thing that did happen that um, going back to what you said about like thinking more realistically is when I was in high school um, and I was thinking about applying for universities and stuff, I didn't know what I wanted to do at all. But all I all I knew was that I wanted to get the heck out of central Alberta just because of my history, you know, being a teen mom, being in an abusive relationship. I truly felt like I just needed a new like a change of scenery so I could really figure out who I was as a person. So I remember one day in high school, um, my academic advisor comes up to me and I'm sitting with my friend and we're talking and we're in the cafeteria and she says like, oh, Shayla, like, what are you, what are you um, thinking about for university? Are you going to start applying? Like, what are you thinking? We can get started on these applications. And I told her because I had been single for about three years at that time and I've been consistently in therapy. So I was like really feeling, you know, I'm on the grad list. I can do anything. I never thought that I would be on the grad list graduating with people that I grew up with. So I was like, I can do anything. I had this like fire in me. So I told her, I said, you know, I don't really know where I want to go for university, but I want to go somewhere far. Like I want to go out of province. I want to go somewhere that offers a study abroad program so I can like travel abroad and like maybe study in Italy for a semester. And I remember saying that to her and she said, well, Sheila, that's not realistic, you know, because you're a teen mom. So let's start thinking like realistically, like Red Deer College. Wow. And I remember in that moment, my friend was like, man, like, don't, don't shoot down her dreams. Like, and she was, she was like, I'm not shooting down her dreams. I'm just being more realistic, you know? And I remember in that moment, I had just enough confidence to start thinking of myself in those spaces, but not enough confidence to like get momentum going, to take action, you know? So I listened to her and I, um, you know, it's, it's crazy. Like that fire in me that I worked so hard for, it was so easily like put out by someone who didn't really know me that much. So I listened to her and I went to Red Deer College for a semester and I failed miserably because I just like, I didn't, I didn't like anything that I was doing. And in the moment I thought, you know, looking back now, I can be like, oh, it's because I was at the wrong university. But in the moment, I thought that I didn't belong in university, period, wow. because I was just like, you know, man, if I'm failing all my classes here, would I be failing my classes in Italy? Like maybe my academic advisor was right. So I dropped out of school and I joined the military and everything. What? And yeah, <laughs> okay. you, you didn't know that? I did not know oh, that. You I did not that. find that in my research. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, um, so I did join the military. I was in the reserves for a little bit. And um, I did that to, you know, make my Muslim proud because I do come from um, a, vet, um, an, a military family. I'm the fourth generation in my family to serve and the first woman in my family to serve. So I was like, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do academics. So I'm just going to try and make my Muslim proud because I probably didn't make him proud when I got pregnant young. So I just did that. And um, through the military, I was able to really get that confidence back. And I was like, wow, you know, whatever strong I think I am, I am 10 times stronger than that. And then that's when I was like, you know, I, I, why, do, why don't I just apply? Like, you know, I don't have my academic advisor behind me telling me what to do. Why don't I just apply to a different university out of province? So, so how did that strength come about? Was that through just hard labor of like running and realizing like, oh, I've only ever run like two kilometers and now I'm running like 20 or I'm doing things that I never thought I was capable of. And yeah. just seeing, so like it was the fitness and the athletics that kind of shaped your, 
your opinion of yourself? A hundred percent. And also just the mental part of it too, because in the military, it's not just like, it's not like a, like a civilian workplace where it's like, Hey, can you like do some filing, please? It's more like it's yelling, it's swearing. It's their purpose in the military is to break you down, to see how strong you are. So it was a lot of mentalness. It was a lot, a lot of mental toughness, you know, having people above me, like saying these words to me and everything and really differentiating myself from them and saying like, you know, I don't have to take what they're saying personally they're just trying to make me stronger mm -hmm. and you know having that like the you know having the words of others and their actions not taking it personally mm -hmm. and using it as fuel to make me stronger so i remember like we i, I we went through a lot in the military a lot the, t the training is not easy physically or mentally so you really figure out your limits and everything so it had a, a lot to do with the physical part of it mm -hmm. and the mental part of it that really like grew this confidence in me where I just like I wanted to see how much farther I can go yeah. and I also even though I was training in the military and learning a lot about myself there was like this urge that like I needed to get out of like I need to get off of the res and I needed to expand my horizons and see the world out there because at that moment, I had never, I didn't, I didn't even have a passport. I'd never flown, I'd never flown like overseas or anything like that. So I just like, I, I just knew that there was more to, to life. And so I applied at UBCO and I got in and I, I moved here with no friends, no family in the province. I didn't know anybody. And then at UBCO, that's where my writing journey really took off. Wow. And it was because that's all I had was just myself and, you know, my, my, ability to write and like really tell a story and I had one professor um, her name is Aisha Revendron and she was my English professor in my first year and we had an assignment it was a literary analysis and I wrote about being in a Sundance ceremony and preparing for it and everything and I remember when I was writing I was like this is the most creative I've written since I was a child and I was reading and I was like, you know, this is actually pretty good. And I was a little shy about handing it in. And, uh, you know, I was a little scared of like what she would like think and everything. But she told me that my writing was beautiful. And she said, please keep writing. And then from there, that's all I needed was just one person to tell me that my writing was beautiful because writing was so vulnerable for me at that moment. I'd never shared it with anyone ever since I was like in grade two and writing comics and stuff. So I shared that creative writing for the first time in my life and in that vulnerable moment she told me how beautiful it was and to keep going and that's all I needed and then from there it's like my writing journey just took off. That's a huge lesson for people is that that moment where you show someone something whether it's a video whether it's a piece of art whether it's your writing is that they're entrusting you with their everything their mm -hmm. passion and I think that that's something we should teach maybe more in school, maybe more at home, is that like when somebody brings you something and says like, look at, look at what I made, that is like one of the most vulnerable moments for a person because in that moment, your thumbs up or your thumbs down really shapes whether or not they continue or where they want to continue. I hate doing this, but we have to, I have to go back because this military experience is so interesting to me because we, we, struggle with we think of exercise merely as like 
physical fitness. And that's often what we think of. But I don't know if you've heard of people like David Goggins or Jocko Willink. Um, there's this other guy, Tim Kennedy. They're very incredibly athletic people. They run like 240 miles um, in distance. And they do it all the time to show that they can for other people to go, maybe I can start running a kilometer, two kilometers, three kilometers, just to prove to other people that great things are possible with your body and that your body will meet you halfway. And I'm just interested, do you have any examples of how that military experience, like facing that adversity and how that shaped you? Because I think we often discount that, the mental toughness that you build when you're running and you're like, I don't think I can go anymore. And then you go another kilometer, another two kilometers. Do you have any experiences that you can share about that? Yeah, um, so much experiences in the military. I'm like, I'm forever grateful for my experience there because I wouldn't be who I am today without it. Um, I think right off the bat, one of the one of the first things is we did outdoor training during the Arctic Gore-Tex where the Arctic um, weather, it came down into Alberta. So it was minus 40. And the one weekend it was minus 40, we had outdoor military training. So I remember there was people who were, um, they were getting frostbite on their nose. They were getting hypothermia. And we had to keep drinking hot water and everything. That's the first time I ever just drank hot water. And we had to keep drinking hot water so we wouldn't get hypothermia. And I remember being really scared. And I remember like, you know, am, are we going to die out here? You know, this is scary. Yeah. This is like, don't like everyone's inside and everything. And that's when I was really thinking, I'm like, what am I doing in the military right now? But then surviving that weekend and learning, learning how to navigate outside in minus 40 weather, that really like... That really showed me like, wow, I never thought I was able to really do that. That's something that was just beyond my scope of like what I thought I would ever do in my life. And it did gain a lot. I did gain a lot of confidence. And another thing is one of um, one of my other courses, um, I actually did face racism on my last course that I went on. And um, I was told things like, you know, you know, I'm going to just talking about how you know, indigenous people, they're like the equivalent to black people in America. That's how indigenous people are in Canada. I was being told that from like my fire buddies. And um, in that course, we had, it was the most mentally challenging because we were up for four days with no sleep. And when we, when it was time to eat, we only had like two minutes to hound down our food and then we had to get back. It was, it was really tough. And I remember during that time, I was up for about three days at that moment, no sleep. And around that time, that's when people like, like they're, they're not thinking clearly. Right. And then at the time, that's when I was being told, you know, all these racist remarks from people. And it's a little scary in that moment too, because we have ammo. We have people who know how to, how to use rifles and everything. And, and when we're training and everything, we're always thinking that, you know, we're in an actual war. What would we do if we were in an actual battlefield and everything? And to have my fire buddies not like to have that kind of hate towards me because I'm indigenous. I remember thinking that I was like, I like, I'm scared, you know, like, I don't know, like why, like in the terms of a battlefield would this person just like, let me go you know would they like not even save me or anything like that would they not look out for me the way I would look out for them and so that was one of the biggest challenges that I've had in the military was being like without sleep for four days in a row and then being told these things about like natives and um you know having stuff like that happen so it was a lot of like mental mentally challenging stuff but I got through that course and I came out of it stronger and then having that experience it really reminded me of my experience in grade six when I was told that like I was a dirty Indian so 
it, it really made me think, you know, I, in that moment when I was like in the military, I already knew who I was as an indigenous person. I experienced the ceremonies. I, I saw like, you know, I heard the teachings from my elders and everything. And I, I saw how beautiful we are when we come together for ceremonies and celebrations. So it was really not letting him get into my head, you know? So that was one of the biggest. Can you, can you tell us about attending those ceremonies and how that shaped you and what you held on to during that time? So ceremonies, they're, they're something that's like, they're so like, special to me but one thing that like I will share is when you're in ceremony you you don't have access to your cell phone you can't go on your cell phone the what you're doing that whole time is you're praying and through there you're like you know I've experienced I've experienced my prayers being answered afterwards you know you go there and you you follow the protocol and then you like you bond with the people next to you and you pray and then when you come out of ceremony you're like oh wow like there's a whole other like world out here and everything and then that's when you start realizing that like so many people are just glued to their phones and so that's that's one thing that I'll always appreciate about ceremony is that it's really it's disconnecting myself from the modern world where everyone is obsessed with like social media and everything. And in that moment, that's when we're really like, we're reconnecting with things that were once illegal for us to practice. And yeah, so that's, it's remembering, remembering to remember who we are as indigenous people. Yeah. I think that that's one of the challenges we face now is like, we're looking at meditation apps, but they're on your phone. Like we're taking like half measures, half steps towards genuine reconnecting with people and coming out of uh, COVID, we're seeing people want to reconnect and they're saying, I don't want to do Zoom anymore. And that's so important for us to connect and put other things away and start to look at each other and like have long conversations about what your life meant and where you're at. Because I think that one of the my favorite parts of talking to people for three hours is being able to see them reconnect things with themselves and be like, nobody's ever talked to me for three hours straight. Like all your conversations are 15 minutes at a coffee shop. Then you have to run and do this. Then you have to run and do that where you don't really get to sort through past memories and sort of put them to rest in a healthy way and I think therapy is a good spot for that but having your family and friends is where you're going to be able to do that all day every day like uh, you only get to see like I went to counseling you only get to see that person once a week once every two weeks where if you can make that with your family where you're having nightly conversations about your day then you can start to go yeah that person cut me off and they were rude but I'm just going to let that go because maybe they were in like you can start to let those frustrations go but you see some people and they're just angry at everything all the time and it's because they have like they have no peace they have no sense of warmth in their life that allows them to kind of go yeah everybody's going to make mistakes that's okay and it seems like that's sort of something you're trying to build was it tough moving here to to bc was that like what was that initial phase like to be here um so it was um quite lonely to be honest at first because you don't I don't have any friends or family out here, so I had to really come out of my comfort zone and start like making connections with people. But over time, I started to realize, you know, I don't have to like, I don't have to have my guard up and be like, you know, protect myself the way I did like growing up back in like, you know, being the only native in a Catholic school and then being the teen mom in the school, you know, I didn't have this wall up anymore. So I just said, you know, I'm just going to show them who I am, who I truly am. And then people who are meant to be in my life, they will gravitate towards me naturally. And through that, 
I was really able to see that I'm like worthy of having good friends who are healthy and like supportive. So yeah, it was it was a really tough transition phase right. and everything. But um, but yeah, it was yeah was the, quite the transition. Was the teacher that you mentioned that had such a positive influence by approving your writing? Did you keep a connection with with her? Yeah, you know, she, I actually, I, I did a poetry collection um, last year with, I had a poetry class and I had a, for the first time in my life, I made a poetry collection and she was in my acknowledgements and I, it was a little bit hard, like keeping in contact with her a little bit because she's very busy and she is also, she has cancer and everything. So she has a lot of time to like, she needs a lot of time to rest. And um, so I remember dropping off a, my poetry collection with her. I sent her the link to my book when it was published and um, you know when I actually started writing again in COVID and everything writing fiction novels because I do have a fiction novel yeah. right now and I'm in the final stages of editing it and I'm like I'm really holding on to it because I really I wanted it I want it to go somewhere where it's gonna be taken care of really well um, when I started writing that I remember in my head I was like well I have one person that believes in me and that's um, Mrs. Revendron and I remember like really holding that to me and when I was writing and everything I would send her like bits at a time I'd be like hey what do you think about this you know and she would just say like give me encouragement like oh keep going I love it and then um, last May when I fully finished the novel and everything I was like um, I was like I need you know people to look over this and give give me their opinion so I sent her the manuscript she was one of the first people to read my full manuscript my partner hasn't even read my manuscript yet so like she was I really really trusted her with it and she took the time out like probably hours out of her life just to read through it and critique it and give me her constructive criticism and encouragement so she has she's still a very important person in my life and um, we, we keep in contact with each other every every time I have something new I always send it to her because she is that one person who she's the first person that believed in me wow and does she does she recognize that does she see the influence that she had yeah I hope so I really hope so because I tell her I always tell her like how grateful I am for her Okay, so you go to university. I'm just interested because your field of study is so far from perhaps <laughs> your writing. Yeah. Was that by design? Are you like, I want to have different paths in my life? Well, what was that decision? Can you tell people what you're doing for school? Yeah, so I'm in health and exercise sciences, so human kinetics. And um, I'm also, I'm planning to minor in indigenous studies too. So one of the things is in my first year of university, I was in this program called the Access Program where I, you don't have a degree yet but you're taking all these courses to see what degree you want and I took a human kinetics course at the intro to it and I was that's when I realized you know growing up I was always in sports and that was really my outlet that like it, it was an outlet for all of my feelings and it helped me grow confidence and it helped me you know be strong and you know so sports have always been important to me and after sports running was important to me so going to university my first year I was taking a human kinetics course and an indigenous studies course at the same time and that's when I realized I, I learned about um, all the benefits of exercise of um, having a healthy diet and everything and at the same time I was learning about the history of indigenous people's health and how before prior to colonization indigenous people thrived in health in all systems from like spiritually emotionally physically you know all those systems we had great diets we were always in shape we we valued having healthy bodies and we lived long lives and 
through colonization, you know, our hunting rights were taken away, our fishing rights, you know, and then we were intro then we had to like move onto these reservations where we had to get a pass from an Indian agent to leave. And then we relied on these Indian agents because our hunting rights were taken away. And these Indian agents gave us rations of like flour and, you know, oils and, you know, saturated fats. And we were just like, we were introduced to this new, what they call it the colonization of the body and you know so I was able to see you know growing up you know my grandparents they both have type 2 diabetes and um our we I never always like really saw fresh fruit in my house growing up and everything so I started to realize you know I don't want to have you know diabetes and everything I want to live a long life I want to learn about hunting I want to learn about gathering I want to decolonize and go back to those ways so I really took those two two classes and I used that as you know something that I would really love to study and um, although I am an author and I'm publishing books on the side I'm also working on a documentary right now with my partner called decolonizing wellness um, we got a grant from tell a story hive so we can do this documentary and I'm taking all these things that I've learned from school about wellness through the western world and wellness through the indigenous world and everything mixing them together as sort of like you know a series where we can talk about how we how we as indigenous people today can decolonize our wellness in all aspects wow. so so I do wear many hats and I I love what I'm studying in school it brings just a greater sense of purpose so I can live a healthy life to provide for my children and my grandchildren so I can you know when I have little chop ons great grandchildren running around hopefully I can still be like walking with them at least you know so I can see them so I can live a long healthy life without these um these diseases that were caused from colonization and um, it's not even just physical diseases it's mental ailments too depression you know um low self-esteem anxiety all that stuff it's you know colonization plays such a big role in those with indigenous communities so that is something that i'm very very passionate about and i'm so glad that i have this amazing partner that will work with me on this creative outlet because i've always been a creative person you know so uh, like what you said like i i feel like i wear many hats and there's many different things that you can do i don't want to put myself in this box and everything i want to do as many things as, as I want to do in this lifetime and study everything that's passionate that I'm passionate about. Okay, so when did that when did you realize that was possible? Because there's got to be a certain point where you're like, I don't know what my life's going to look like. Things look pretty dreary. Now all the doors are sort of opening. You've got opportunities to make a difference to change the circumstances of the next generation. Did you see that in the future of like maybe one day I could be making a documentary, writing books, being a published author, like sharing information and encouraging people to reach their full potential was that like the goal or has this just one door after another and then realizing wow I could do all these things it was one door after the other and this is the beautiful thing about moving away for university and like getting yourself out of your comfort zone and you know when I moved here with no family or friends in the province and that was the best decision I made in my life because I took these classes that opened up all these doorways for me and I, I really saw it and one of the biggest moments for me is um after my first semester, after I took that first human kinetics class, I had to write a lifetime research assignment. And we had to pick from about like 10 topics about, um, you know, you have to do extensive research on this topic with health and talk about how that's going to shape why you're studying human kinetics. Um, 
none of those topics had anything to do with Indigenous people. And we actually didn't learn about like Indigenous health really in that first year. So I was like thinking, you know, I'm taking this intro to Human Connects and then I'm taking Indigenous studies. And I and at the same time, I was reading Indian Horse. So I was like reading this fictional story of this this man who his hockey was his outlet from residential schools and everything. So I was just really seeing all of the connections. And I was like, you know, I reached out to my prof and I told her my idea. I want to I want to like do a research assignment that isn't on this list, but it has to do about the the like how physical health phys- like physical activity can help heal indigenous people from trauma today. And um, she was like, sure, I've never heard anybody do that before, but go ahead. And then through that, I was doing my research and I realized there is not a lot of research on indigenous health, not up to date, at least. They're all really like from the early 2000s. But now, now within the past few years, I've seen a lot come out. But at that moment in time, it was so hard for me to like find, you know, research articles that were within the past five years that could help support my work. So um, I did, I ended up finding, I reached out to, um, his name is Dr. Braden Tahiwi. He's a, uh, he's Maori and he, he has, oh, I from believe, New Zealand. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And he works at the university and I met him around the same time and it was um, a little workshop event. It was called decolonizing physical activity. So I attended that. And he was there and I reached out to him and I told him, you know, I'm doing this research assignment, but I can't find any research. So he sent me about three articles right away of, of recent research backing up my my idea, not my idea, but like my um, my argument that physical activity and nutrition can help heal trauma today for Indigenous people. So I was like, yes. So I wrote my whole paper on that. And then at the very end of it, I got 100% on it. Wow. Actually, no, I'm lying. I had 99% and I got docked one mark because it was too long. I went over the word limit because I I was so passionate about it but you know having that my first a plus i was like wow and this is something that my prof said she's never seen before so i was so that was one thing i'm like wow there needs to be more research on indigenous health and i need to i need to do my part on the scholar side to make sure that there's more research on it and you know do my best to study it and then use it on my walk of life that's incredible because yeah you get so disconnected from your food and you think of McDonald's or Subway and there's this feeling that you can just eat it and it doesn't mean anything. But uh, we had the pleasure of going over to my partner's uh, dad's place and he grows almost everything himself. Really? And so he's like, oh, like it's, it's tough to grow this life and then have to take like take parts of it away like there's a there's a connection to it and uh she convinced rebecca convinced me to start uh we go to like local growers rather than going to save on to get our stuff and it i'm one of those people who's like i'm pretty against the woo woo stuff but when we tried it it doesn't taste anything like you take the two tomatoes they don't taste anything alike one tastes like water and one tastes like a tomato. And so it's so interesting to be able to start to connect with your food and have a story around it. And for Indigenous people, that would have been how it always was, is that uh, like in Chilliwack, we have a spot called La Chiam and it's where wild strawberries grow. So you have connections to, oh, we had to go to this spot to go get these strawberries. And like everything comes with a story. And so you have maybe this fruit salad filled with fruits from around your area. And then there's a connection to it. And there's a story with, oh, and then I saw a cougar when I was grabbing these strawberries. And oh, I saw like this beautiful eagle over with like and you have like a connection when you're eating the food together where right now it's like nothing is intentional you have no idea where your cucumbers are from or where your salad's from or where anything you're getting is from and then there's this sense of disconnect and like 
it doesn't matter. What I'm eating doesn't matter. And you get like calorie counts, but they don't mean anything to you personally of like a connection. But when you have like a really good home cooked meal, there's something different about it because the person is like showing you their writing. They're proud of what they've made for you and they put in time and love and care. And there's something we all acknowledge that like when something's made with love, it's better. But imagine if your food like was grown with love rather than on this giant farm where you, the farmer's trying to make it at scale. There's no love being put into each and every cherry. And I'm sure some farmers would be like, I do my best. But when you're growing it yourself and when you're cultivating and your hands are in that soil, there's like a different connection. There's a bit of meditation in trying to get at the food. There's like, there's so many benefits to reconnecting with the land. And I think we're starting to see people take those steps forward. But it's just funny because when you hear about people wanting to be more natural, this is again where indigenous people we started from. And so it's just interesting to see like it come sort of full circle where everybody's like non-GMO, I don't want antibiotics. And it's like, hey, we were never doing those things. Like that was never a part of our, our plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That you just like you hit it right on the nail. That is exactly it. And do you believe in like, um, you know, the energy you put into your food? It really affects like the way it For tastes sure. and everything, because yeah. one of the biggest teachings that indigenous people have is that you know, when you're making your food and you're preparing it either for your family or for a feast of people, you know, you always put good loving thoughts into it, good prayers, and then it tastes good. And then those, that energy, people are eating that energy and they can feel it like that gratitude. And it's so different than when, you know, I worked at McDonald's before I was like stressed out making burgers and stuff. And I, you know, it's different when you go to McDonald's, you get a quick food and everything. And then like, and then you wonder why you're angry after you wonder why you're irritable. You wonder why you feel so tired and everything. So yeah, it's really, you, you really hit it on the nail. That yeah. energy is And real. you can see it literally. Like when you think of like how Subway squirts on your mayo versus if you're making a sandwich and you're making it for someone you care about, you want to make sure that that mayo hits every corner. You don't want to just like slop it on yeah. and fi- mm-hmm. like figure it out and it's it's not flavorful you take the care to do that with each thing and when you're raising animals and you're trying to make sure if they're stressed out the whole time Mm -hmm. i have very little argument now that now you're going to be stressed because their bodies were physiologically stressed i i forget who said it but they said when like black bears eat garbage their meat isn't that good, which everybody's like, that sort of makes sense. But if they're living a really low quality life, if they're crushed into a cage, why wouldn't you think that the stress that they're under um, of not having any room and their their mindset is going to impact the quality that they produce in terms of their eggs or in terms of the meat that they produce? And it's we're at that time where like vegans are like we and vegetarians are like we need to take care of the animals and that's why I don't eat that and so like I guess from an indigenous perspective all I would respond with was that like it matters more that you show appreciation for it you say a prayer when you're taking that life that you demonstrate your gratefulness for that and that you take responsibility for the life you took and go be a better person afterwards. Treat the person you're dealing with nicer because you just took a life. And so you have like obligations now and like an onus to do better in your community, to to think larger. But it's so easy when you're at McDonald's to be like, oh, like who's this cow from? Like, I don't know this cow, so who cares? But when you feel that onus, I think the onus that vegans and vegetarians feel is good. But how I would play it out would be like, I want to show respect by treating others better and owning that I am like, a a person that eats meat and now I have an onus on me to do better as a consequence of that rather than saying I'm not going to eat it at all it's that I have to 
help keep like the ecosystems in check, make sure that populations are fair. Like I sat down with Lee Harding and he's a caribou expert and he was explaining how like we're just shooting wolves from planes uh, to like keep their populations down. Like there's got to be a better way. And that's where like it's so tragic how we in Western civilization treat animals, treat life when we know that they're so much more intelligent than I think we ever realize. Because uh, there's this fantastic fungi article, uh, Netflix. I just watched that like three days ago. Okay, so trees communicate with each yeah. other through mycelium. Like what? Like I first of all, I'm that person who thought like trees don't think, they don't have feelings. Like I just assume that they're just a tree and I'm a person and I think so. I'm here, tree. But then when you find out that they can help move their, their baby tree, their tree child, somewhere farther away, when there's not, like, sustenance for them, it's like, I just didn't, th because you don't have eyes, you don't have a chin, you don't have a face, I assumed you weren't alive. Mm -hmm. And so to, to learn those things just blows my mind. Their animal and plant life is so intelligent. And, like, what a Western way to think that, like, there's nothing smarter than human brains. I actually feel like, you know, something that my partner tells me is that if, you know, animals are so much smarter than us, they, they, they know how to survive out there. Yeah. We're, the, like, for his Indigenous people, um, his, like, the Silk people, they kind of, he told me that they kind of, they're taught that humans are pitiful. And, um, you know, there's these stories that come about like, oh, these these um, like these certain animals, they give up their lives for us because we wouldn't be able to survive without them. Yeah. And uh, when it comes to the bear, they're they're not allowed to eat the bears or anything like that. But they but they can eat the bears under the exception that there is absolutely nothing left. There's no other choice. And then the bear would give up their life for them. But they're just like their stories like originate back to the fact that you know, humans were so pitiful. We have, we don't have any fur on us. Yeah. If we were to like, we can freeze to death just sleeping outside without a blanket on us. And, you know, we really need to, we wouldn't be able to survive if it wasn't for the animals and the plants and the water and all these other systems that are so much bigger than us. If anything, they, they sacrifice a big part of themselves so we can survive. Yeah. And, you know, going back to like what you said about how, um, you know, we need to, we really need to change the way we see and view animals instead of like viewing them, like you say, like vegans and vegetarians, they say like, oh, we need to like, just let them live. We, we don't eat them. And although that comes from a good intention, indigenous people have been hunting for years yeah. since not years, centuries, you know, yeah. like since time immemorial, you know, and we're, we're always taught that when we hunt for an animal, we do it in a good way. We're not doing it in like, where we just take and take and take. No, there's reciprocation in that. You know, there's protocols to follow for uh, my people, Cree people. We we have to like, we put down tobacco. There's like a whole preparation phase for hunting and we put down tobacco once we get a kill. And once we get a kill, we use every single part of the body. You know, when one of my greatest experiences just down this road and up those mountains over there, I got my first buck with my partner. And for the first time in my life, I got to witness what it's like to hunt you know, a buck and then all the processes that go with, that go about it. And, you know, watching him, you know, like gut the animal and everything. And then he grabs, we grab the liver and we, no, not the liver. We grab, I, I forget which part of the animal that we grab, but we grabbed as much parts as we could and we scattered them around and we put them up and he grabbed me, he gave me a certain body, like, 
like an organ and I put it up on as high as I could on a tree and everything and there was vultures and crows you know going around and everything and not even a minute after I put it on the tree I got down from the tree and I looked up it was already taken by a few birds so we we share that stuff we spread it abundant we spread it abundantly and we try and use every single part of the animal as we can we don't let that animal's life go to waste and you know there's prayer with that, you know, gratitude. Thank you for giving me your life. And now because you've so selflessly given me your life, I can, you know, harvest you, you know, in a good way. And then you can feed 10 other families. And, you know, it was just, and even to this day, we're still finding ways. We still have pieces of my buck. You know, my mother-in-law, she, she's cutting up like uh, sawing off the antlers and using them as buttons and shirts. She's making these ribbon shirts and she's using them as buttons and she's giving them, you know, she's making that with love. And then she's giving that, you know, that medicine to other people. And just recently, a couple weeks ago with my decolonizing wellness documentary, we used my buck's hide for the very first time. And, you know, my mother-in-law, she scraped the hide, she prepared it and everything, and we made a drum. And we, we used that drum and we gave it to my daughter. So we're, we're still two years, almost three years later, we're still finding ways to take that gift that was given to us years ago and finding ways to still use it, to still spread it apart and everything. And we, with the, with the meat that we got from the freezers, we gave it away to, I think about three houses down here. And then I gave uh, about half of the buck. I traveled all the way to Alberta and I gave it to my family and my Muslim grabbed that and he dropped it off at elders houses. At least 10 houses were fed because of that buck. And there's so much gratitude that goes behind it and so much more meaning of, you know, what it's, it gives you so much more gratitude when you're, it makes you think twice, you know, when you have a plate of food and you have like a steak or ribs, any sort of meat, it really makes you think twice before you eat that. And it makes you think, you know, give thanks. Absolutely. I think that that is one of the best arguments for, hunting in that way because I think hunters typically if you go into Vancouver and you say I hunt the typical response is like how could you I could never and it's like but you're like there's a responsibility that flows that you don't talk about when people say like I shot this or I killed Mm -hmm. that is like you don't have the full context of all the processes that people go through all the experiences and memories of like every time you eat a part of the animal you think like wow like do you remember that day and like and then you share another memory and so it's like it lives on for it sounds like years and you'll never forget the first time you killed that animal and so it lasts probably the rest of your life you'll have that connection to that story and that's far more meaningful than picking something up from save on foods that you could ever have and so i do think that there's like a longing for that sense of responsibility to use things fully and like a pride that you get to feel when you say we use the buttons and we figured this out and we're we're looking for new ways because it's like it's carrying on that animal's legacy and Mm -hmm. I think we have that same responsibility to our family members and I think most people don't remember that I don't I think most people if their family served in World War II or the Cold War World War One, we don't have like that understanding of like what people gave up for us to be here today. And I think that I'd like your thoughts because a lot of your book focused on elders and their role. Can you tell us about what elders mean to you? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, going back to the beginning of this podcast, you heard that, right? I it did. sounded like some, something like people are probably fishing or diving out there, but I, I heard that. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, going back to the fact that my, my grandparents, they played a huge role in my upbringing and they, 
without them, I wouldn't be who I am today. And it's not just them providing a sober household. It's their, it's them giving me access to ceremony and them speaking their language around me. And I don't fully know the Cree language yet, but I can, when they're speaking Cree to each other, I can understand what they're saying. And, you know, it's just so much gratitude towards them, even through going through residential school and being taught that you can't practice these things and, you know, being told, you know, you're, you that you should be ashamed of who you are yet they still rise above it and they're they're in their 70s and they're still speaking their language they're still practicing their ceremony and they're passing that on to their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren you know they're doing they're to me and like elders there are knowledge keepers they carry so much life experience so much knowledge such, such a different perspective you know every generation after them has lived such a different perspective of what it means to be an indigenous person in this modern world and for elders and everything you know they're they're going at they're, they're passing away they're getting old and so there's not a lot of them left that have this knowledge so it's so important for us to connect with them and learn our language and you know learn our culture and everything before they're gone they need to pass on their knowledge and also along with like them having such a different path way of life and everything um they also have this unwavering love yeah. That's what I found. It doesn't matter how much trauma they've experienced in residential school or if they've like endured alcoholism, addictions, everything that you can name that like colonialism has brought upon indigenous people. Every every time I see an elder day, all I see is love and how much how much they care for their community. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think that like normal people can learn something from how there's an admiration within indigenous culture of elders? Because during the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw seniors not getting good care. Um, I interviewed Daryl Plekis and he talked about how um, the Christie Clark government of the day was very like, we don't need to care about seniors because they're gonna die soon. So who cares? So there's this underlying value that seniors don't have a lot to offer. Um, that their job is to retire, go buy a place in Kelowna or something, sit on the beach and die. Like, there isn't that feeling that they have knowledge to offer. Do you think that that's something that perhaps, like, I feel like when we talk about decolonization, we should put forward good ideas on what they could do better, that our culture does, that they could learn from. One mm -hmm. of them is how we eat, the quality of foods we eat. You can take something from this and maybe start to say, I, not that like we can get rid of McDonald's, but that there's more to be found in eating more naturally. Um, mm -hmm. And then the same with elders. That's always one that stands out to me is like so many of my friends are like, yeah, I like they'll take selfies with their grandparents and be like, oh, like, look at this old person. But it's like that person's lived a life, like a crazy life of seeing like at a certain point, Hitler was about to succeed um, and take over Britain. And we were going to take up World War II from Canada. Like what a crazy thing to be sitting there being like, oh my gosh, is this going to come right here to like this land? Mm -hmm. uh, during the Cold War, there was like, what if, like hide under a desk for a nuclear bomb to go off? Like these people have like had some pretty crazy times. We should hear about how they overcame. Do you think of like how, what Canadians can learn from indigenous culture? Yeah, so, you know, that, that whole mindset where when our when our parents or our grandparents get too old for us to take care of we just drop them off at like a nursing home where other people can take care of them um you know traditionally indigenous people we never believed in that we we took care of our elders just as much as we took care of our babies they were kind of like viewed under the same amount of respect and and you know 
I, I really do think that's such a colonized way of thinking as just to throw away your elders as if they didn't just live a lifetime and they have so much knowledge to offer us. Um, I think that it is um, so important to like take care of your elders and just just give it, get as much knowledge as you can from them because they they raised us. So when they get older and everything, we have to take care of them. You know, they change their diapers, yeah. you know. So I do I do strongly believe that it's the colonized way of how we treat our elders. It's it, it needs to be fixed, especially if it gets into our indigenous communities, because our indigenous elders, they've like, you know, during the wars, a lot of them have faced enfranchisement because they served in the world, the war, and they didn't benefit from serving in the war yeah. because they got their status taken away. They they just served in the war because they want to protect our land. Yeah. It's just it's a, cra a crazy amount of respect that we owe to our elders, and I I don't, from my personal belief, I don't think it's um very very wise to just leave them drop them off at a nursing home. You know, I think they, when I when I think of myself as being an elder, I think of myself being surrounded by my grandchildren being surrounded by so much family just the way my grandparents are right now um I, I did learn a lot from seeing the way like in my family and everything um because my my grandparents they both had diabetes uh, they both got diabetes when I was like young probably around my daughter's age around seven years old and I saw the way my whole family had to pick up for them because they they provided a house for them and you know all these opportunities they 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 raised them and everything so when they got sick my mom she um every night she would go in she would cook healthy dinners for them so it's really that reciprocation of giving back to our elders so the other thing i interviewed shelly canning uh and she's a registered nurse but a retired one and her mm -hmm. interest is uh, in ageism and misconceptions around aging um, because we always look towards like younger people and for a lot of the guests that I've had on they've been like I don't want to age myself I don't want to date myself oh this is gonna date me if I say that like I saw this in 1988 now you know I'm like not 20 any like there's this weird feeling people have towards getting older and I think that that's one of the most like sad things that a person can carry when you hear somebody's like oh i'm 44 for the 10th year in a row it's like that's so unfortunate that you can't enjoy the the journey of your life and the different chapters that you get to enjoy and it seems like looking to uh indigenous culture again offers an opportunity to rethink what it means to get older that now you have sage advice that people should be coming to you for that you have wisdom on how to live a meaningful life you've made mistakes and you can talk about what you've seen and what you've overcome and how you didn't approach it well there and so you don't have to repeat the same cycle it seems like there's a bit of shame in getting older for so many people and a feeling that you need to look 20 forever do you have any thoughts on like how we can start to incorporate that change in mindset in regards to it yeah it's it's one of those things where i'm like i'm i'm just like recently getting around to like you know the the inevitable fact that we're gonna age and we're gonna get old and like when we're young and like in our 20s we don't think that we're, we think we're like i remember this one time i was like sitting next to my gookum and we were talking and i saw her hands and her hands were like wrinkly and they were like so aged but i didn't think of it in like that light where it's like oh, that, that's never going to happen to me. In that moment, it was so beautiful because, you know, she has such hardworking hands and she has like rheumatoid arthritis. She struggled with that for 
decades, yet she's still gotten so much done and she still brought so much valuable stuff to the world just with her hands. And it's just like, I remember thinking that, you know, aging is actually so beautiful. And um, I think it has a lot to do with social media too, is like we have this fear of like getting wrinkles and this fear of aging, but it's, it's inevitable. And I feel like it's only gonna, it's only gonna hinder our love for ourselves if we just keep trying to, you know, be youthful. There's so much beauty in aging. There's so much knowledge behind it. I, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So when you come here, when do you meet your partner along the journey? When when do you two connect? Is that like what was that kind of process like? Um. So I I met my uh, my partner. I think about a little under a year of living here and we just like and we just met up and we like we played lacrosse together and we just like shot around the lacrosse ball and got some food and then from there it really started with like friendship and we just like we just connected and then from there I just never stopped hanging out with him and everything and then he um he I thought it was so cool that he like had rifles and stuff because I was like oh I have military experience so we would go shooting and everything and then he took me hunting and then from there it's just like this friendship really just like developed into like a partnership and so it was it was under a year that I had been here and um and yeah and from there we just like we started hanging out and everything and now we live together just at the head of the lake over here and it's i'm just so grateful that i found myself like a silk man because now i have access to his culture and everything that's really what i was lacking when i was living in Kelowna. there's um i had no access to ceremony out here and everything and then his family took me in and now his family is my family and we go to ceremonies so it's just is such a such a fulfilling partnership that I'm in. Amazing. Can you tell us about what you've learned from his culture, how they compare? Because as I said, I think most people struggle to understand how unique each culture, did. like I'm from the Stolo nation, so we were really into fishing salmon and like the phrase were people of the river and that's, we have stories and values around that. And that's completely different than people who live on the island who hunted whales, which mm-hmm. blows my mind. And so yeah. can you tell us about learning about the two different cultures? Yeah, so... um I actually wrote a poem about him. I, I wrote a few poems about him, <laughs> but he was um, he was a little bit of my muse when I started getting really into poetry again. Um, but we come from such different uh, different cultures, but they're the same. They have so much. They connect with each other and like um, they cross over. And we both have the same belief that there's a creator out there. We both have the same belief that animals are so like you know we, we respect animals and we have like the same you know neither of our people and like came from like invented the sweat lodges but we adopted the sweat lodges from um from the Sioux people I believe it is and so there's there's a lot of both of our people we've done a lot of adopting uh certain ceremonies and everything so there is that but um there is some key differences like his language for example is very it's like there's a lot of um there's a there's a lot of different like pronunciations that I'm still getting around to, but he can just pronounce it so well, and I'm just like struggling so much. Um, but yeah, I did I did write a poem about us like reconnecting with our cultures and learning each other's languages, and that's been a big thing in us um, uh, in our relationship is learning each other's languages. It helps us, you know, it helps us learn when we're teaching each other it. But but yeah, there is there's there's some there's a lot of similarities and there's a lot of differences too. What are some of those differences? Because I think that that's so. Because when you described their belief that humans are like less competent 
than others. Uh, I read Stahelis's, they just signed a reconciliation agreement with the provincial government. And in it, one of the first pages is their origin story. And one of them is that like basically all the plants and animals in life basically went like, you guys are incapable. And so we're going mm-hmm. to like give ourselves to you because you're incapable. Mm-hmm. And that feeling of like supporting and connecting, I think is so cool to see those connections. But do you see any of those differences that sort of stand out to you at all? Yep. So there, so there's a similarity that we both have uh, tricksters in our cultures. And for Cree, our, our trickster, I actually, I can't say their name right now because it's not wintertime. We can only say their name in the wintertime um, and tell their stories in the wintertime. So unfortunately, I can't say the name of our trickster. But for his trickster, his trickster is Coyote. And so they have like strikingly similar like lessons in their stories, but their stories are different. And um, the the bottom line is that we had these tricksters who basically they went they walked through so many different paths of life, and we tell stories about it to teach lessons to younger children. Right. Mm-hmm. And there is like there's there um for example the like they do a lot of um how do I say it. So when it comes to grieving people and everything, um, for my people, we like, we, we do different protocols where we cut our hair, depending on how close they are to us, we cut our hair and everything to grieve. And, um, at the, when it comes to, um, like, at the end of the funeral, we have a big giveaway of all of their things. We give it away and then we put our pictures away for a year. And that's just the protocol that we follow to help us grieve. Um, but for them, for uh, my partner's people, they do it a little bit differently, but it's, it's not like they, um, depending on how close they are, they have, uh, they tie themselves with hide, um, around their neck, their waist, and then, um, their wrists and their ankles and everything. And that's just to like really protect them. And then, um, I'm not sure about cutting hair. I actually don't know if that's that is a part of their um, tradition or not, but I know that they don't put their photos away for a year. And when it comes to their loved one's personal items, they actually burn all of it instead of giving it away. So very key differences, but not to say that one is better than the other or one is the right way or the wrong way. It's all like, there's there's all just different ways of being and practicing. And then it just comes down to really like, he sees the way that my people do things. We do co-ed sweats. And then we're um, in the sweat lodges. We have men and women together. Yeah. They, with their sweats, they don't believe in doing sweat lodges um, because like women are viewed as very powerful. So when it comes to sweat lodges, the men's sweat lodge is exclusive from the women's and the men's sweat lodge is um, above the women's. And then the women's would be down closer to the water and everything because um, they're, so we don't like, how do you say, not really use the word contaminate them or anything like that. But when it comes to like a stream of water and everything, our power isn't like, you know, put onto them like it doesn't cross over I think so there there's like a lot of differences in the way we practice our ways but it all comes down to like the same beliefs yeah do you feel like you like because the cutting the hair it seems like that would be symbolic of like you've lost something and like showing that you've lost something so people can see it. Is there is there a different logic to it than than I'm aware of? Um, so a lot of indigenous people believe that like um, our hair is like the extension of our spirit. So that's uh, why a lot of like native people grow their hair long. Mm-hmm. It grounds you closer to the earth and everything. And when you lose someone who's very important to you, it's almost like you you, you know it's demonstrating 
um, from from what I've been told, it's demonstrating how close they were to you, where you don't want to you don't want to keep going on with life, just like having everything. To get. You want to like you want to bring like leave a piece with them, a piece of yourself with them, and then from there you grow you you you, know, you grow new hair and everything, and it like it helps with like the grieving process. It sounds like another thing other people can learn because we've got really terrible way of remembering people in like today's society outside of indigenous culture which is like you go to the funeral some person you don't know talks for like 20 minutes about what death means usually a priest uh and then you see the body you put it in the ground and you leave and like that's it like there's Mm -hmm. not like like i just lost my grandmother and like the hard part is like we've had to create something to fill that gap that feeling of like she's gone but like her legacy is still here and it's just who's going to pick it up who's going to try and find a way to make sure that her memory and everything she worked towards is preserved in like a meaningful way because to me like the way she adopted my mother my mother wouldn't have survived had it not been for her Mm -hmm. and so I would have never been born had it not been for her saving her so like to me her effects are so vast that it's hard to imagine like even with your family like if your grandparents didn't do that for you perhaps you're not here today perhaps you don't make a documentary perhaps you don't make so like people's effects on you they can have such a cascading effect and i don't think that we do a good job of recognizing that in western culture and i like that there's processes that stronger cultures have towards remembering and respecting and giving thanks and like understanding that life is like so much more because right now uh, we just talked to somebody the other day and they were like, I like David Suzuki's take, which is like people are cancer on the planet. And I think that that is mm-hmm. like the worst mindset you can have towards people is that we're a cancer on the planet. We absolutely have flaws and like I'm not here to disagree with that, but there, we're also here to like harmonize the ecosystem. We're here to make sure that the wolf populations don't outsize other populations or bears or like we're here to try and keep the peace amongst all animals and that that if we don't take up that responsibility, the whole ecosystem's worse off. Like humans do play a role. And I think that that's that's something maybe people avoid, but it's something in the grieving process. Like I've seen whole communities like shut down, band offices isn't open, nothing's open for the next week because we lost a person and this person mattered. And like when you go to a regular job they don't like i lost my aunt and it's like who's your aunt like that doesn't matter to me you need to be at work 7 a.m or you're fired like there isn't that like care of like this was a human being like they lived a life and like Mm -hmm. i want that time to like to grieve and to figure out how i'm gonna rebuild their legacy whether it's a bench or whether it's doing something to honor their memory it seems like that's something we, we sometimes miss yeah, I agree. And it's so like indigenous people, we do such a like a great job of really honoring this person's life through having like a four day, a four day funeral, uh, sorry, a four day wake where as soon as we hear that the person has passed away, someone has to start a fire and nobody can leave that fire. That fire needs to be burning for four days straight. We need people to watch it overnight mm-hmm. and we need, we all come together and we make food and we make that food with love. And then we, we share these memories and everything. And even after the person has passed on and like what you said like like um here on my on my partner's reserve every time someone passes away like his his meetings get canceled because he's on council and everything so they really it's really one of those moments where indigenous people know to like stop and just like stand still when someone when someone leaves this world because it people are grieving and we need to remember them in a way and another difference between mine and his culture is they they have memorial feasts and everything um but for my culture too we we have this belief 
belief that um, every one year, one human year is one day in the spirit world. And um, our, our Cree beliefs is that after um, a person passes away, they go on a four day journey in the spirit world to find their way to like the happy hunting ground to heaven and everything. And so every day they need to eat. So every, every year on the day, uh, around the day that they passed away, we have a feast, a memorial feast of all their favorite foods so we can feed them. And then after we have a spirit plate and everything, and then we, we put it somewhere where no humans walk and we leave it there for them. And so that's our way of remembering them. Even years after they pass away, we're remembering to feed them in the spirit world. And not just after those four days that it takes for them to find their way to the happy hunting grounds. It's, um, you know, years after that too, every few years we'll have a memorial feast or even every year we'll do something to like celebrate them i've heard of people having hockey tournaments in their name and like you know just finding ways to just keep their memory alive and because um our one of our beliefs is that spirits get hungry too so we need to keep feeding them and we need to keep you know keep their memory alive in that way yeah i actually had the opportunity to talk to dr keith carlson who's an expert in stolo history um and tying it in with his understanding of like what happened with colonization and stuff and he actually he's a roman catholic and he was able to like um, I'm always interested in the parallels. Like I see grace for uh, Christian people as comparable to like uh, saying a prayer or salmon ceremonies to indigenous people. Like I like those overlaps because then I think it's less about how we're different. And it seems like the last hundred years have been really about like, well, you're not, you don't practice your faith in my way. So we're different. And I don't, I don't think that that yields a lot of fruit. Like, I don't think that that's going to aid in reconciliation is, is focusing on how we're different. And he was talking about how, I think it's around Easter time, they, they burn something and they go through the church and burn it. And that's putting smoke up to the spirits. And then indigenous people, we feed the fire and that's feeding like the elders and the spirits above. And so like, I like those parallels because then it, it opens the door to realizing we're not so different. And mm-hmm. like, I think that the danger is always looking for differences. Then we're looking on like, fighting and disagreeing and arguing about it's it's god or it's creator and it's like they're they mean something to both of us and we can all agree that there's something bigger than ourselves and Mm -hmm. that that can perhaps bring us together can you tell us a little bit more about your partner and lead that maybe into your i don't know where you want to start do you want to start with your manuscript because you started that first your upcoming book i think you started that first and your how a creator sees you was your your pastime yeah can you tell us about that yeah, so um, I actually started writing Mimi Quas at the beginning of the pandemic when, um, you know, the world shut down and everyone was forced to stay home and everything. I started writing um, my manuscript for Mimi Quas. And um, so when it comes to writing that, I was really just taking... You know, a lot of my experiences of like being raised in a home where there was domestic violence and then taking on that intergenerational trauma where I endured domestic violence and then how I healed from that. And a lot of my healing came from really going back to myself and valuing my health, you know, and redefining what health is for me. So a lot of um, what's in that manuscript, it was it was healing for me to write it because it's it's a lot of my own experiences. But also, I want to make it fiction because I also want to like you know make some other creative ideas in there and like make it make it a new story, you know. So um, so I wrote that manuscript and I finished it and everything. And um, my partner has been my greatest 
like supporter and pillar in my writing journey because he's always believed in me ever since day one. When we when we were started dating, um, I was I wasn't finished my manuscript yet. I was about like three quarters through, and he never read it. And he already believed in me. He was already connecting me with mentors. He he connected me with um, this woman. She wrote in my own moccasins, Helen Knott, and uh, calling my spirit back, Elaine Alec. He connected me with those two indigenous female authors and. And I got their emails, I got their like social medias and I told them, you know, I'm not done this manuscript yet, but like I need some advice from like, because I didn't know any other people in the indigenous literature world, but he did. And they just like, they just having those people to look up to and mentor me and give me advice, it really like, it just shot me right, you know, like in the right direction. And I finished my manuscript and I had all these people that believed in me. And then going through the editing stages of my manuscript and everything, I really have to remember like the reason why I started writing the medicine behind it. But it's a little hard when you're critiquing your own work all the time. You're like, oh man, like, why did I put that? How do I, you know, you get writer's block and you have to like, remember to be creative again. Um, so that's when um, I was with my partner and he was like, he he's always like, you know, shot so many new ideas with me when I'm like, I want to do something creative. He'd be like, well, write this, write this, write a story about this. You know, he's really like just throwing ideas out there and really getting my gears rolling. And um, I was editing um, my manuscript and I was starting to feel like a little bit discouraged because I was like, I was getting to that part where everything was a little bit too technical for me. And I didn't, I was thinking about the possibility of me even being an author. I wasn't an author at that point. I was just a student at UBCO that had this manuscript that I couldn't seem to like, you know, really tie the ends together with. And so I told him, I was like, I kind of want to like write a children's book. And then I want to like, but I want to make it different. I want to make it my own. I have, I have yet to really see um, like an indigenous children's poetry book, you know, like Dr. Seuss. And I'm sure there's, there might be some out there, but I just never seen it. Mm -hmm. I never, I've never read it. I never seen it. Um, so I was like, I want to like kind of make like a Dr. Seuss inspired, you know, children's book for indigenous people and um so we sat there and we brainstormed and everything and I was taking a poetry class at the time too so I was like so the poetry gears were already rolling I was like uh, getting really creative in that area and then um after brainstorming and everything we came up with the idea of um writing a poem to really empower indigenous boys with their braids. And then I took like my experiences of when I was called a dirty Indian in grade six. And I was like, you know, how did I feel at that time? You know, I felt like, you know, I didn't like my skin. I didn't like, I wish my skin was lighter. I didn't like my hair. I wish my hair was blonde. I wish my eyes were like blue you know I wished all these things I wish that I looked like a white person and I remember like that's and I know that I cannot be alone in that mm -hmm. so I I took that experience and I found a way to like really make it into a big poem and then using my um my gookum you know keeping her memory alive because she's she's getting old and I know that like she's not gonna be here for like I don't know. I, I can't guarantee that she's going to be here 20 years from now. I hope that she is, but I can't guarantee that. So what can I do now while she's alive to honor her memory? So she knows that she will be remembered. And like, she's, she's the inspired character long after she's gone. So really taking those teachings of like honoring your elders, taking the experience that I had of facing racism and really turning it into a story. Indigenous people have always been storytellers. So it's kind of a way of me also decolonizing, um, you know, storytelling too putting it in a, a paper format so it can be like printed and passed down and in stores and people can buy it 
so I really like I put so much love into this poem and you know it's actually kind of funny because once I perfected the poem it took me a week max and I ordered all the illustrations and everything and like um, the poem I loved it so much and it was about this little boy named Muskwa and his name is Muskwa means bear in Cree and it had to do with his braids and I took in the teachings of like the metaphors of like the bears and stuff and I mixed it into the poem and then it came up to the time where my illustrations were almost done I think there was only like two more pages left of illustrations left and I was done editing it and everything and I was like just waiting for that those illustrations to come in so I can put it all down on paper and um I was scrolling through Facebook this one morning and I don't usually go on Facebook first thing in the morning but for this time I did and I came across this advertisement for this book that was published and this woman was holding this book in I think it was like a Barnes and Noble store and um, it was so similar to my book and it was down to the name his name was Bear and it was about his braid mm -hmm. and it wasn't a poetry book but it had it was the same theme and the same name and it was about his braid and I was like whoa I just came to this like you know the standstill where I was like, I put so much love, I put money into mm. this. And now, like, do I still go through with publishing it? Even though, like, you know, I, I don't know how, like, it works with, like, getting sued and stuff with, like, you know, copying someone's idea or anything like that. Even though I never knew this person, I never even knew that, like, this book was out there or anything until that moment. And so I was almost, like, feeling a little bit discouraged. And then my partner told me, he was like, you know, successful people don't just give up. They pivot. They work around it. So just, like, like how can you pivot from this? What, what can you learn from this? And, well, the first lesson was there is no such thing as an original idea. Everything is adopted, you know, everything's adopted and recreated and like made their own. So that was one thing. It was really like, it really brings like your ego down to like a humble, a humble level where you realize that there's no such thing as an original idea. And then um, finding a way to pivot it. Cause at that moment, I truly believed that there was, you know, a greater purpose behind this book because while I was writing it, I was in too deep. I, w I already saw the little, I already saw myself reading to all these little indigenous children and them looking up to me and, you know, like their eyes beaming and, you know, seeing themselves in me and me seeing themselves in them, that reciprocation. I was already visioning that when I was writing the book. So I was emotionally invested already. So I was like, I can't give up now. I have to like, I have to pivot. So it took me a little while, but within a month, I had changed my whole poem around and I changed his name to Kahu. And I brought in the teachings of like eagles who fly the highest in the sky. Mm -hmm. And you know, at the very end of it, I like re-edited my illustrations and everything. And once I finally got it all down on paper, I realized that everything happens for a reason because I loved this version 10 times more than I loved the first version. And I loved the first version with all of my heart. So it was just a, such an intense amount of love that I put into it. And I was like, you know, everything works out the way that it is supposed to work out. And then I self-published it. And then my partner, he helped me with marketing and everything. And eventually I got to read to um, this, to the, a school in the town that I grew up in. Not the Catholic school, but um, the elementary school, Pinocchio Elementary School. I read to them twice, once through Zoom and once in person. And both times at the very end of it, they're like saying hi, hi to me, which means thank you in Cree. So it's just like so amazing, like to that community. They're doing so much work with reconciliation, much more work than when I was a child. But to see them have that work with reconciliation where a whole class says hi hi to me like thank you in my language it was just like coming full circle and like having this feeling in your chest and that's the thing like every time after I read to children 
read my book to them, I have like this feeling in like my diaphragm and I couldn't really quite pinpoint it until last May, last month in May, where um, I was reading to them in person. And at the very end of reading, I had that feeling like in my heart and my diaphragm. And this little boy, he was wearing a purple ribbon shirt and he had like long hair, like probably up to here. You can tell it's like in that awkward stage where they're growing it out and everything. He had these like big glasses and like these big teeth and he raised his hand and he was like, my name is Kahu and your book helped me like love my hair and love my braid. And in that moment, that's when I realized that, you know, that feeling that I was getting after I was reading to them, it's only passion and purpose that can really feel that. So yeah, my partner, you know, he's played such a big, he's been such a big support in all of this. Would you be able to tell us the story of how the name came about? Because I think that that's a really beautiful connection between you and your partner and how the name sort of came about for your your first book. Mm -hmm. So um, I was writing a poem about my partner and um, it was on our anniversary. And I was just trying to like, you know, when you you love someone, I feel like love is such a deep, um, a deep, feeling that like it's so hard to put it into words and um, at the end of my poem I just asked him like you know do you see yourself the way creator sees you and that was just my way of like asking him if he really like knows his worth and like his purpose on this earth and everything and just how precious he is and um, that was at the end of my poem and then I remember after I wrote that I was like that sounds that has a good ring to it and everything so when i was when it came to writing my poem and everything i i like i was looking at my past poetry and i saw that and i said you know that really like that statement it really stemmed from a pure place of love so i took it and then i remade it into like you know asking children that i'm like how how powerful would it be if you asked a child who is still growing who is still so naive to this world and someone like an indigenous person older than them asked them if they saw themselves the way creator sees them i feel like that would you know i was really thinking you know is that something that i needed when i was a child and that's where i like really ran with it and it's just like my greatest work has all come from a place of love so yeah that meaning and like it's easy to do something when you feel the meaning and the drive behind it because um as we were talking about before we started recording there's this like people say i want to write a book but they have no idea why they would write a book who they would write it for and it's like i just want to check a box but you've done it with such intent of like these things sound like they've come naturally what was the decision to self-publish was this partly like you were proud that it was yours, that it was made by you? What was the kind of decision to self-publish? Because that sounds like far more work uh, than hiring somebody else to do it all for you. But I've also seen people who hire those publishers and they don't get any of the support. And now they've paid a lot of money and like partnered with somebody and then they don't have somebody on their real team that's trying to get their word out on their book. So what was the decision like? So there was like a few things that made me self-publish. And um, number one is that... When I was writing my poem and everything, I didn't want anyone to change my words. And although it is good for you to get like outside sources to edit and critique your work, I'm like, I'm not saying that that's not okay. Like that's like, that's really important in the writing process is to get like those second opinions. Mm -hmm. But for this one, I held it so close to me that I didn't want like after reading the poem and everything, I'm sure people like who, who do good editing and stuff, they probably like, oh, I would have done it like this and stuff. But for me, for my first book, I really wanted it to be 100% my words and my work. And um, I wanted it to see just, you know, how much I, how far I can go just doing it on my own. And then 
from there, like taking the lessons and then like, and then start like expanding and going through publishing companies and everything. So that was one thing is I didn't want anything, any of my words to be changed. And um, another thing too, is I had a sense of urgency to publish it. And, um, you know, I, it goes back to like me, like, really believing that writing is like a spiritual practice for me like storytelling and there's such a greater purpose behind it um when it came to this children's book i i once i started writing i said i need to get this out as soon as i can i can't wait six months for a publishing company to get back to me and i can't like i don't want to i want my i had this vision i wanted my artwork to be a specific way and i wanted everything on the book from the from the front cover to the back cover to all of the words i i just had this like you know this knowing that it had to be this way and this is the way it was supposed to work out so I watched uh, a quick YouTube video on self-publishing and I was like that's actually quite easy and uh, Amazon um, Kindle Direct Publishing actually does a great job with like giving you all the resources and the outlines for like templates and stuff like that so it's it's, a fair, it's fairly easy to self-publish once you put in like all the work and everything so um, yeah but it really got back to like me like having that sense of urgency to get this out in the world and right. I feel like everything happened the way that it was supposed to happen like getting pivoted to go in a different direction and I, and like the publishing date it was like divine timing yeah was there like a sense of pride as well once you hit that self-published button like once you hit that point that this is all you there's no people behind the scenes trying to pull strings or anything that this is authentically your first step uh into the the publishing world um when, well when i first published it um i didn't still didn't like really quite believe in myself i was like hey it's out there and i pub i posted it and i was like if anyone wants to buy it you know it's right there and then next thing you know people were buying it and next thing you know i was getting interviewed by these media outlets and then i was like people were reaching out to me and they were like they were reading my book far before i even got the book in my hand people had already had their copies and they're telling me how much they loved it people were telling me they they cried when they read it and in that moment i was like didn't still didn't quite believe in myself but other people believed in me so i was like you know i took that action momentum was coming people were believing me and then i held the book in my hand and then i i would say that it wasn't until i, I held the book in my hand and i read it and i realized what i just created that i really felt that sense of pride yeah. and then speaking to these uh, media outlets and everything I had just a little bit of imposter syndrome because it was my first book and I published it all by myself. Um, but over time, like getting these opportunities and everything, it's really grown my confidence to really be proud with what I've created. Yeah. What has that been like? Because uh, maybe you see yourself as like the components to doing what you're doing. There's so many more than maybe you realize in the get go of like having to do media interviews and and having articles written about you and and being savvy on social media what has that like the book is done and that's that's maybe your your comfort zone but now there's interviews and there's talks about it and there's getting the name out and, and stuff like that what has that journey been like um so it's been it's been a lot to work with to be honest because i like in my heart i'm still like this this little girl that grew up in like his tribe and like you know was a teen mom i endured like domestic violence and everything so there still was this like belief that like you know like what am i doing you know who do you know who do you think you are like that's what the imposter syndrome is but you know i had this opportunity to speak at the can do conference as a national youth panelist and when i was first like accepted into the panel and everything and like seeing everybody else's stories i was like wow like i don't really like 
like I think thinking I don't measure up and everything but my partner really helped me like really it was like what don't think that way like what the heck you're like you're an author and everything you know it was really learning how to accept like the the good things that came with like accomplishing this and really like accepting people you know saying you know congratulations you you're a good writer and then like really accepting that and believing it 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 took some practice at first but over time after like telling my story over and over again it's like repetition everything and it's really like making me realize that I have come a long way and as important as it is to be humble and to you know keep like keep striving for higher goals and everything it is also just as important to be in the present in the moment and yeah. think wow you know i was like that little i was that little girl who faced racism and like didn't really love myself i was that teen mom who like ended up in like a woman's shelter and everything and now i'm here right now and i have this thing that people are proud of and it's opening so many gates for me and really saying you know look what happens when you open your heart and you really you really water your passions yeah. and you know and it, it's just retelling my story it's really helped me you know realize how far i've come yeah and being able to tie that not just back to like your own success but being able to know that it's having like a positive impact on those individuals in the schools that you're presenting at and i think you went to the west edmonton mall and did did uh work there could you tell us about like the impact you've seen on young people and that inspiration yeah so i had some people come out to my signing that were from my community and it's just like really it's really amazing to read to these little indigenous kids and you know you know seeing myself in them them seeing themselves in me and everything and then them also realizing that I am from Muskochees too I am from the same reserve as you I think it is important to have those people who come from the same place as you and seeing them reach these heights and everything I think it's so important to see like the like the role that I play and you know it really keeps me in check with like walking a good path in this life but but yeah it's um it is really like it's very humbling very yeah amazing. what was was the response what you expected was it surpassed any expectations surpassed yeah 100% surpassed i wasn't i wasn't even really like expecting to like have like media coverage on it just because it is my first book and everything and i was like well i probably have to market myself and like sell like 200 books before like i get media attention but i probably only sold like 100 books before i like got media attention and everything it was just like it, i wasn't expecting it all to come so fast yeah. uh, it, was, it was very fast almost like a little bit too fast where I had to I was like talking to my partner Ryan I was like this is happening too quick I don't know if I'm like ready for this I don't know if I believe that I can really do this yeah so yeah How, what was that sort of journey like to start to adapt because I think that that's the inspirational part of like nobody envisions themselves reaching those kind of heights nobody but like you kind of have to ride the wave and and take advantage of the mm -hmm. opportunity but there is sort of that like let's put the brakes on let's slow this down a little mm -hmm. bit um, because people are knocking so what was that kind of journey like it's it's going back to you know you don't have to fully believe in yourself at first you just have to take action and through action you gain momentum other people start believing you and then you can fully believe in yourself is there anything that you haven't liked about this, like that's been a challenge or adversity that you faced publishing your first book? 
Um, the only thing I can think of is maybe being on social media to get the word out. Everybody says stay off of social media, but even with the podcast, you can't stay off social media in order to get the word out. Yeah, so actually um, back in March when me and my partner, we started our decolonizing wellness documentary. On one of the episodes, we did a dopamine detox where we stayed off of social media. We didn't eat fast food. We didn't watch TV. We didn't listen to like music and stuff like that. It was like a full on like extreme dopamine detox where we were just forced to just be, you know, really all we could do was meditate without like the mindfulness like meditation music and stuff like that be out in nature we had to find ways to keep ourselves busy and like and then through that dopamine detox I really I realized just how amazing I feel without social media and that was around that was three or four months after I published this so then I then it started to become a little challenging with marketing and I was like well you know, I really want to like a big part of me wants to like delete everything and not go on social media ever again. But then I social media is such a tool that you can use for all of these things. So it's like I had it was a challenge having to find the positives in social media, how I can use it as a tool, how it can bring me opportunities, but also having the self um how do you say, like the, the restriction to limit myself from falling back into being on social media too much where it starts to become toxic for me. So the way I view social media now is it's almost like a job. Yeah. And sometimes it's not like, sometimes I don't like it too much to having to like post and everything because um, there's that there's that fear that, oh, I'm going to fall back into the social media rat race and everything or yeah. like the, the hedonic treadmill and everything. And then you know, feeling so burnt out after scrolling on Instagram for like an hour and then like having these thoughts like I'm comparing myself to other people, but it's like, it's having to learn how to use social media as a tool to market. It's, it's a challenge that I'm still learning how to master today. Yeah, the only advice I can give is my partner and I have gotten very good at scheduling the posts. Uh, so like every day, I think two posts go up. I have no idea when, I don't pay attention to it, but like Facebook does give the option to like schedule all your posts. Oh really? And so now, and you can do up to, I think three or four months of, of scheduled posts. And so obviously with some things you can't plan ahead and schedule it because maybe there's an interview dropping that you didn't get to choose when it releases. But for the most part, like uh, I'll take the podcast turn it into clips schedule all the clips on twitter instagram facebook and they just go up when they go up and i don't have to connect with that because that was a trap i was falling into is i talk so much smack about social media and then i'm on there trying to get the word out and being like gotta like it gotta like get the comments out and it's like if you can just schedule it then you have like less of a mm -hmm. connect and maybe it doesn't do as well if you're sitting there like trying to get the word out but at the end of the day they're gonna like it or they're not but that's the only kind of trick i found is kind of disconnecting myself with when it's going live because then there's like that like how is it doing now how, every five minutes but when you don't know when it's releasing there's like kind of like a oh i people will be like oh you just posted and i'm like I, well, i'm just sitting here talking to you so mm -hmm. yeah wow i didn't know that you can schedule your posts i'm gonna have to ask about that after this podcast how you guys yeah. do that because that would help me a lot with um marketing and everything because for me i find it like troubling when I, I log on facebook or instagram I'm like okay i gotta make this post and then like while i'm writing it i'm like uh i'll come back to this later and yeah. like scroll and everything like that but yeah that's that's a very handy tool actually. absolutely um so i'm interested to know 
what when does your uh, other book come out what like what is your plan in regards to that so i have um if everything goes according to plan um i should be done editing it by the end of this month um because i i follow like the schedule where i like you know i crunch and everything i do a little bit at a time one chapter a day two chapters a day and then going through it and then like once i'm done this round of edits i want to i want to not publish it i want to submit it to a publishing company because i want them to do the hard work for me this time <laughs> because this one was like a lot of lessons came up with self-publishing this one and marketing for myself so i wanted to go to a publishing company and there is one specific publishing company that i have had my eye out since i was like still in the first phase of writing this book oh. and um i i really like i've been like manifesting it since day one that they pick up my book and um uh, thank god they they have like um a little thing where they they accept manuscripts from indigenous people without going through a process they just like it's just a button like um they usually go through like a process with other books manuscripts and everything where you have to like go through like these stages and everything before you can submit it but for indigenous people you can just submit your manuscript directly to them wow. and then they'll like get back to you within a few months so i really want to put my book there because they tell us about the publisher so we can get the word out uh indian they they published indian horse okay so um by Richard Wagamese and um, I believe they published Medicine Walk by Richard Wagamese you know a lot of Wagamese's work which by the way like just like a quick tribute to Richard Wagamese yeah. he's inspired me so much in my writing journey and um, rest in peace he actually lived just in Kamloops over here wow I did not know that yeah so he's inspired me so much in my writing and I just wanted to really he was the trailblazer for me and he paved that path so I feel he reading Indian Horse it really like that was the book I read around the time that I started writing again like fiction and fiction terms and everything and so I just like really want to like follow his footsteps yeah. and everything because he really he really blazed that trail for me so it's the same publishing company um random penguin house they published indian horse and i really i'm planning on submitting my book there but i have also applied for um this uh Audible Indigenous Writers Circle. Have you ever heard of it? No. Um, so Amazon, you know, Audible and everything. They have this like program for Indigenous writers and they have these authors mentor Indigenous writers. And I applied for it and I should know by the end of this month if I got accepted into it or not. And they have um, Richard Van Camp. Um, who is, he's, he's going to be one of the mentors in this and he's going to, um, so if I get accepted and everything, I would love to be mentored by authors like him and, you know, really see if what their opinion is and like, see where they can critique my work, where they can like, um, where they can like see if they can like make my manuscript 10 times better than it is. So I do have that. It's in the air right now. I don't know if I'm going to get accepted into it or not, but if I get accepted into it, then I'm going to hold on to my manuscript a little bit more. And that's going to be my goal in the Indigenous Writers Circle is to work on it, right. to use that as my main piece and then get this advice from all these different indigenous authors like mentoring me and helping me bringing it into like a masterpiece so we'll see where it goes what is this one about how would it compare in in terms of writing style because it's quite a bit longer i'm guessing it's a yeah it's a fiction novel yeah. so um i tried to make it about fifty thousand words which is like a, the average length of like a fiction novel um but it is about this girl named mimi kwas which means butterfly in cree and she heals from intergenerational trauma from uh running and really valuing her physical activity so wow. it's uh there's a um, 
without spoiling too much, there is a lot of, um, it's, it's like kind of, um, how do you say it? There is intergenerational trauma in there. There is sensitive topics in there, but, um, it also shows her journey of how she overcomes every single one through healing. Yeah. That is the message I think that we're working on right now, because I know a lot of people who just are now learning about residential schools and what's going on and they want to help but the, the, from their perspective, it's like, how do I get involved in reconciliation? Like, how do I make a positive difference? And my perspective has been consistently, grab your book. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Stand Like a Cedar, um, but that's like a Stolo-based book with Carrie Lynn Victor and Nicola Campbell, um, who wrote about, like, standing strong. And we have a story about our cedar tree uh, that a generous man was turned into a cedar tree and that it gives back to the community. And so you want to you wanna live your life and be strong and stand like a cedar. And so to look at people like that, I don't know if you've heard of Raven Reed, um, but uh, Nicole McLaren, I think I have her name right, uh, she's created these subscription boxes so you can hear from Indigenous authors like yourself. You can uh, get interesting uh, decor and stuff from her subscription boxes. And I think the powwow box is available now. Um, which they were just talking about, but that there are avenues to connect with the culture in a beautiful way. Because I think that that's the hard part is if you just learn about, uh, like I come from a criminology background, so I learned a lot about our overrepresentation in the criminal justice system, uh, our low education rates, all these terrible statistics that make it really dreary if those are your four facts on indigenous people. It makes it seem like we're really not on the right track. But then there's people like yourself uh, inspiring a different message, which is, yeah, Indian residential schools, the 60s scoop colonization, these were horrible atrocities and really taint Canada in a negative way and have made Canada look horrible on the global stage. But the, the beautiful story is how strong the people who attended were, how strong their children are, how strong their grandchildren are, and how we're not down and out. We're not done. We're, this isn't the end. We're going to turn this around. We're going to bring back and we're going to fix, seems like, a lot of like Canada's problems when it comes to energy, when it comes to taking care of the environment, when it comes to these things, we are the trendsetters that I think others will eventually follow. And so I think that that's hopefully the message people think of when they think of Indigenous people now, not that we're down and out, that we're on the rise and look at us, turn all of this around because we are so resilient, because we are so strong. Yeah, there's a couple of quotes that I've seen before. The first one is, as much as we carry like our ancestors' pain, we also carry their resilience and their strength and their love and their ability to laugh during hard times. And another one is, as much as we teach people about, you know, the the like the horrible traumas that Indigenous people have endured, we should also be putting light on the successes and like, you know, what what we're doing today to like really heal from that stuff. We need as much Indigenous success stories as we do you know really shedding light on all the terrible things that are happening there yeah. needs to be a balance at least absolutely so for the documentary when is that hoping to release or what is the plans in regards to that okay so i do not know the exact date but i know it's either mid I, i'm gonna say mid-july to be safe oh so um, it's coming up really soon really here. soon wow. yeah the first few episodes we finished four episodes so far and those ones are gonna start ex being scheduled to be aired in july and you can access it through telus optic and um so yeah so those will start in mid-july and then um they're gonna we have 10 episodes and they're just gonna be carrying out after july i think they'll all be aired by september i believe but is they're gonna be accessible on youtube or anything like how are people gonna get it if they don't have tele um so we're um i my partner knows more about that stuff but i'm right now i'm gonna say that yes you can access it on youtube because at the very end of each of our um 
our episodes we were doing a little podcast with each other and those are going to be aired on our youtube but like uh you know i don't i believe that like you can still access it you can still watch it, it without telus optic like there will be a link for people to watch it on the website right that's going to be amazing uh how long how many episodes and and how is that sort of set up so we have a uh, 10 episodes and each one is about 10 to 20 minutes long i believe the longest one is around like the 25 minute mark right so yeah and so they each touch how and sorry how many episodes did you say 10 10 okay so um and it's going to cover a different topic each one yep yep they're all gonna like they're gonna cover different topics so we tried to like we had so many different um we have actually have a model and everything and we we're talking about nutrition we're talking about like physical activity we're talking about like arts and like creativeness we're talking about um you know our spirituality kinship um there is you know like our kin our connection with like um you know animals and plants and stuff and um yeah i believe right off the top of my head i believe that that is the that is our web and everything we, we are going to be showing the web on like the intro video but um so we're covering a bunch of different topics about wellness but they all overlap with each other they all like play a big part in like balancing each other out so you'll see like a lot of things crossing over throughout the whole thing right and so was the, was like videographers brought in or how did you guys set all of this up? My partner is actually a videographer oh and a photographer. He's an amazing one. He's been doing he's been doing freelance work since I believe 2018. Wow. I don't know. It was like but when we he's been doing freelance for years and so he has like a lot of years under his belt with photography and videography so he was doing that for like different companies out here before that and then so we didn't have to really thank god hire any videographers and like it's really it's only been me and my partner really organizing everything i'm like i'm the script writer and everything and we both have wow. our brains together so i'm writing everything down and he's shooting everything and he's also teaching me how to like use the gimbal and stuff and right. so yeah we've it's all creatively me and him just like you know you do this and i do that and then like we're teaching each other things and like we're just working together as like in, as partners that's got to be so cool to be able to like work together and not have to have a meeting in a boardroom to like and like other people have like a different vision that you guys mm -hmm. are able to just collaborate all day long yeah it's great us being able to really like be as creative as possible and because we me and him we have like so much similarities and how we are creative and everything and when when we're not where we don't have similarities we're like you know really supporting each other in that way so it's it's really been great to see what happens when two highly creative people can come together and then just create this together yeah. Absolutely. Can you tell people what maybe, because uh, this will be airing shortly uh, into National Indigenous Peoples Day, can you tell people what reconciliation means to you? Yeah, um, uh, Rebecca actually asked me this earlier today when you were setting up and I told her, you know, right off the top of my head, re reconciliation is creating these safe spaces for Indigenous people to creatively express themselves freely and just making those spaces. Like, you know how Random Penguin House has an option where indigenous writers can just submit directly to them instead of going through all of these things it's just really it's really recognizing you know the extra challenges that indigenous peoples face and you know making much more things accessible much more resources for them so they can you know get that helping hand up in like succeeding in this world amazing what do you hope people take away from your story what do you hope uh, perhaps there's a young person and they're struggling in school or something what do you hope they take away from your story um 
Wow. You know, I think that really viewing, you know, every idea that you have, viewing it as a gift from the creator, because it really, it's to get to where I am today, I've had this belief that this is my purpose in life, that it's bigger than me. You're going to impact so many different people on this walk of life. So it's really, you know, seeing those gifts seeing those ideas in your head and you might think oh they're a little bit silly but when you start seeing them as gifts from the creator given to you because you are capable of bringing them to life and impacting people it totally changes the narrative and it shifts it from oh maybe I can do this one day to I have to do this I have to impact these people it was given to me from the creator so I can bring it to life you know and share that medicine and there is this um I was listening to motivational videos this Monday, and you know, I believe his name is Denzel Washington. I don't know his name. Do you? Yeah, Denzel Washington. Yeah, he he's a like, famous black actor. Yeah, 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 and he's like has motivational videos yeah. and stuff. Okay, so he had this exercise, and it completely just changed the narrative for me. It's like, you know, you close your eyes and you think of like, imagine you're on your deathbed and you're, you know, you're about to die, and around you are all of these ideas that you had, all these ideas of like, business ideas you know and anything really and like you they were given to you because you were supposed to bring them to life all these goals and dreams and aspirations but you didn't bring them to life because you were too scared to fail and now they're going to the grave with you and they're so dis like they're looking down at you and they're like disappointed it's like you were supposed to bring me to life and so i can impact on change all these people's lives but you were too afraid you couldn't overcome your fear so now i'm dying with you and you know it's a it's a little harsh to think about it but you know it really it really goes hand in hand with me really viewing those gifts those ideas as gifts from the creator yeah that's incredible because, uh, as I said, I listened to David Goggins and he wrote a book. Um, I think it's a won't break. I've got, I'm going to mess up the name. Yeah, no. But he wrote a book about how uh, he was abused as a child by his dad, uh, not really loved by his mother. Um, just he was super overweight. He wanted to become a Navy SEAL. He faced a bunch of adversity. And as I said, now he runs like 500 mile races. Um, but one of his kind of anecdotes was that he goes up to the pearly gates and there's a guy there and he's saying what you were supposed to do in your life in order to get into heaven. And he want, he, his dream was to get there and have them say, you were supposed to do that. Yeah, you did that. Yeah, you did that. Um, oh, we didn't expect you to do this. Oh, you, you weren't supposed to run 240 miles. Oh, you weren't supposed to. We didn't expect you to do this. And to have that whatever list of the end of your life to surpass whatever anybody's expectations were for you, mm -hmm. that you could do that, that that's conceivable that you could surpass even what like anyone expects of you and that that would be a really good thing to to see how far you could push yourself just like when you're facing adversity and you're out in the cold and minus 40 and you're like I never thought I could do this but you do these things and you go like wow I'm capable of more than I ever anticipated and I think that that's such a, a motivational message to leave for people uh, can you tell people how they can get your book um, how they'll be able to I know you just said it but how people can get access to the documentary um, and how they can connect with you on social media yeah so um, to get The Way Creator Sees You, you can access it on Amazon. You search up The Way Creator Sees You, you can order it on there. It is also available in a few select Indigo stores right now in Kelowna, Vernon, Edmonton, and Winnipeg. But 
this is like kind of like my little announcement is um in the works right now i'm working with uh, a guy at indigo on getting my book on a canada-wide distribution so it can be in every single indigo store in canada so it's in the works right now we're you know we're trying to get we're trying to tick all the boxes so i am hoping that we can get it in every single indigo so it's more accessible for people but as of now it is available on amazon and my social media um, I'm mostly active on Instagram, so it's Shayla.Rain, and I do have a Facebook author page that I like to update after every single reading that I do, uh, you know, things that I'm up to. So yeah, that's how to access me. And if you also purchase my book, I do have an email, a work email on here that I use. Awesome. Well, Shayla, I'm so grateful that we were able to sit down. Can you tell people where we are right now? Yeah, so we're on the Okanagan Indian Band, which is unceded silk territory, and we are right beside the north end of the Okanagan Lake, and we are also beside us. This is technically Kamaska Beach, and beside us is the Palo Arbor. And yeah, we're just overlooking this beautiful lake right now. I'm actually really glad that we were able to, that you agreed to come to the spot, because once you told me that you were coming, you guys were going to do an outdoor podcast, I was like, I know two amazing spots, but I'm glad that we got this one. Yes, I couldn't agree more. It's been beautiful to have the birds in the background. I really appreciate you sharing the journey that it took to, to become an author, um, your courage to make decisions that were maybe intimidating at the time, because I think that we're, our community, anybody who reads your book, anybody who hears this is lucky that you made those decisions because it makes an impact um, and it makes people think maybe I can do that. Maybe I can learn from somebody else's story and grow as a consequence and I think that that is we're so lucky when people like yourself are willing to do that so I truly appreciate you being willing to take the time uh, to come out here on this beautiful day and share your story and thank you so much for coming out here it was I'm sure it was like an anxiety filled like journey just to get here and everything all the all the like bumps and that we've hit on the road I'm glad that we were finally able to come here and sit down and talk and although we weren't able to do the full time that we wanted I believe it's quantity over quality no sorry it's quality over quantity too absolutely. and I'm, I'm really glad that you guys I'm really thankful that you guys were able to make it out here actually. absolutely and if we can support you in any way your documentary share the word get the message out uh, hopefully there will be future episodes of this where we talk about uh, your new book uh, and what's going on there because I think that uh, we need more voices like yours so thank you thank you so much for having me and awesome. we just did yeah like two and a half hours something oh like that. that's awesome <laughs>